This is Jocko Podcast number 307 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willing. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Also joining us again tonight is Dave Burke. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. <laughs> I gave everyone fair warning that this book was going to take a while. We are going to continue the review of On the Psychology of Military Incompetence, which we started on podcast 303. 304, 305, 306. Now we're on 307. So if you haven't listened to those, go back and do so. If you listen to those, you probably realized that, which I, I realized I haven't pointed out yet. I hope it's obvious, even though the context of these books is military, it doesn't just apply to the military. It applies to everyone in every leadership situation, which is why we can learn so much from these insights. With that, let's get. Well, let's get back to the book, Yes, as they like to say, on the psychology of military incompetence by Dr. Norman F. Dixon, also World War II vet, wounded in action, legit guy. Little bit too crazy on the psychology stuff sometimes, especially nowadays. The psychology, some of the psychology of Freud's been debunked. Freud was a cocaine addict. Freud was, Freud was, <laughs> was, uh, what's it, prescribing cocaine for like every problem that you had. You know, you said, oh, I'm not feeling very well, cocaine. Oh, you know, I have a, I'm sick to my stomach, cocaine. <laughs> I'm not getting along with my wife, cocaine. This guy was doing cocaine and prescribing cocaine. And apparently he lied about a bunch of stuff too. He would say that he cured people that never got cured. Or, they, or he, he would say that they were cured, but they were really just cocaine addicts. <laughs> so there is some stuff. And and I don't know. The I never was a big psychology guy until we had Jordan Peterson on this podcast. That was kind of the first time I said, "Oh, I get it." Mm-hmm. That's where I realized these guys are brain mechanics that understand there's a problem. They look at it. They go, "Yep, we've seen this before. Yep, I, I know this pattern. Oh, you're scared of this thing, or you don't get along with these types of people, or whatever." Mm-hmm. They say, "Yep, we've seen that before. Here's how we can actually fix it." I, prior to that, thought psychology was, what's the right word? Kind of, you know, uh, gobbledygook. Is that the right word? Yeah. What did you just say? Woo-woo. Yeah, a little bit of woo-woo stuff, a little bit like, hey, how could these guys, what are they going to do? Whisper in your ear. You know, I I thought it was that kind of thing. I didn't realize that they had methodologies and that they made sense. What about hypnosis or whatever? I don't really understand hypnosis too much. I've never been hypnotized. I've never even been to one of those shows where people get hypnotized and they act like a monkey or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Have you been to one of those? Yeah. You believe it? I believe that hypnosis can work on some people. In fact, I, th- I think that that's yeah, the that's jam. the case. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the show that I went to, the I went to two of them that I remember, and I remember thinking, this hypnotist mm-hmm. isn't that good, either mm-hmm. not that good or the person, the subject or whatever was just sort just of dumb. going along, oh, okay. not because they were in on some scam, but yeah, more they're that just down for the cause. Down for the cause. Exactly mm-hmm. right. They didn't want to make everything look dumb and stuff, so they just did it. Have you ever seen anyone get hypnotized, Dave? No. Have you ever been hypnotized? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, they, you, there's little tests they can do to you. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, that it's like, I saw that on Rogan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that about rolling your eyes back or something. something like that. Yeah. Who's that guy? I don't know. I forget. So that's kind I sort of you know how you kind of looked at it, mm, not really sure, 100% sure? That's kind of how I looked at psychology before. 
before oh, uh, Jordan came on, and I was I I understood. And what was weird was how he was explaining exposure therapy, which is exactly what's in Way of the Warrior Kid. And I said, oh, this stuff can make sense. Got it. But of course, there's some weird stuff. There's still weird stuff in psychology. And they're doing weird stuff right now in the psychological world, the way they're coming out with all kinds of weird things. So, Did you study psychology or did you take any psychology? I'm sure I took something. Actually, I'm not sure I did. But I don't remember. If I did, I don't remember it. Yeah. Other than maybe what whatever you learned in high school, yeah, maybe that's what made me think it was a woo woo. Yeah, that's the term you used. Woo woo. And yeah. what did I say? Gobbledygook. <laughs> Some advanced. So term. the psychologists out there, I apologize. Yeah. It's not gobbledygook, and it's not woo woo. It's legit. It's mind oh, yeah. mechanics. Well, okay. You ever heard of uh, Pavlov's dog? Yes. Okay. So yes. just that alone. So that's legit. Yeah. Like just right. that alone. Think about it. Like freaking. You just associate a bell with food, and mm-hmm. it's like your body responds, like your behavior, like stuff that you typically yeah. don't control just responds in that way. It's like, oh, okay, so you just think about how deep that goes, yep. and then people who understand that and can navigate and guide and, and kind of influence in that way. Yep. It, yeah, it makes sense. And so here's the deal. on the In this book, I didn't want to just start trying to play psychological historian right, and yeah. going back and yeah. but there's definitely some things I read I was like, okay bro <laughs> you know, hey dr. Nixon I respect you but I'm not gonna exp- I'm it's too much right it's too much a lot of that Freudian stuff is too much it's weird N- not just weird it's not it's not that it's just weird if it's weird but it makes but it's but it's backed up then right. cool there's mm-hmm. some weird stuff going on in your head but when you read something you go that seems kind of weird mm-hmm. and then you find out that it's all debunked anyways mm-hmm. and that was the deal with Freud Freud like I said on the last podcast a broken clock is war- is right twice a day right. well that's the same thing with Freud he was right about some stuff the biggest thing being that you do have underlying psychological thoughts subliminal thoughts or subconscious thoughts not subliminal sub subconscious thoughts that drive your decision making it make you act a certain way yeah. so if you got whatever your parents treated you a certain way you're gonna tend to wave you know if your parents built distrust in you you might not trust people as much right. if they wanted you to win all the time you might and that could go two ways right you could be like oh I'm gonna win or I don't give a shit yeah right yeah. so it's yeah. weird how you're gonna turn out yeah. but the what is you can't predict how the person's going to turn out, but you can say it has to do with the fact that every time little Johnny didn't win first place, his dad was beating him. Right. He either grows up and is winning, yeah. or he just doesn't care he's anymore. He's not competing, right? At he's all. not even competing. Yeah. But those are underlying. There's an underlying cause. Now, what Freud did was he brought it all down to like how you were potty trained, and just no, bro, it's not just that. So. That being said, there are underlying things, and this guy ends up profiling all these different people. So here we go. We're gonna get into this. Uh, the, this section is called "Character and Honor." Got a great, it opens up with a great quote: "Why should a man be in love with his fetters, though of gold?" So you you are chained, and you, you're in love with those chains, but you shouldn't be. Even if they're made of gold, you shouldn't be in love with them. And another one: moderation in war. Is imbecility. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, going to the book here. In the context of militarism, the forces of conscious 
and of character manifest themselves in various guises, in medieval notions of chivalry, in codes of honor such as the duel, and in the belief that officers must of necessity be gentlemen. As Karl Demeter has shown in his history of the German officer corps, these notions of honor and chivalry brought about and were themselves reinforced by a care to select officer material from the aristocracy and rural landowners, a state of affairs reflected in the contrast of snobbiness, exclusiveness, sense of honor, and lack of intellectual ability which obtained between the officer corps corps drawn from the aristocratic junker families of the great states of Prussia and those more bourgeois elements from the industrialized southwest of Germany. So these old military officers came from rich folk. And he said there's a difference between some of the rich folk that were in the city and some of the rich folk that were big landowners and they had a little bit different behavior. Not gonna spend too much time on that, but I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. A A code of honor is a set of rules for behavior. The rules are observed because To break them provokes the distressing emotions of guilt or shame. Whereas guilt is a product of knowing that one has transgressed and therefore might be found out, shame results from actually being found out. In military circles, traditionally, the greater crime. It is usually assumed that military codes of honor serve to reduce fear. This may well be so. Their primary object, however, is to combat not so much fear as the sort of behavior to which fear might otherwise give rise. In other words, they are designed to ensure that threatening situations are met by fight rather than flight. They do this by making the social consequences of fight, the social consequences of flight rather more unpleasant than the physical consequences of fight. That's freaking radical, right? Mm-hmm. Like I would rather, and you hear team guys say this all the time, oh, I'd rather just freaking die. Than be a sissy, hundred percent. I've heard of that. As a matter of fact, uh, BTF Tony said that on this podcast. <laughs> he was scared shitless of heights, and he's on some eighty-story building in Hong Kong or Singapore or something. And he's got to rappel off of it, and he's totally thinking he's going to die. <laughs> and he's like, "Well, I would rather die than be a sissy up here." So their 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 rules work. Whereas the latter might lead to physical pain, mutilation, and death, the former eventuates with far greater certainty in in personal guilt and public shame. What I'm thinking about this is, I'm sitting here thinking like, who fought, who said, well, you know what we need to do is we need to create a code of honor so that we can make sure that people don't run away. That would be some really meticulous, like preemptive ideas. Mm I'm thinking that there is a tribal nature to this stuff. Like we are instinctively programmed that if you run, you're not looking out for your clan and you suck and we don't like you. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think there's an instinct to that. Not just a code that's written by modern man, but I think there's like a code that's instilled in us by being an animal. Yeah. That seems like the case for sure. Maybe the code is just to like take that in an extreme situation direction. And, and animals have it too. Like a pack of hyenas go after a lion or whatever. 
They go after animals that can definitely kill a couple of them. Mm. But they'd rather be the one that gets killed than be the one that runs away. And they know that if they can't run, if they run away, they're not gonna survive as a species, so they gotta get it on. Oh yeah. Man, I watched some hyenas the other day. <laughs> Discovery Channel type situation. Uh, more like YouTube freaking red zone. <laughs> like, hey, I'm yeah. nine <laughs> videos deep or whatever. <laughs> yes. But dude, this zebra was getting eaten by hyenas. Mm. And first of all, the hyenas were savage. Hyenas are my favorite land animal, by the way. That's interesting. Yeah. But the zebra was stoic. He was having his legs eaten. And yeah. he looked, the look on his face was he was watching an afternoon movie. Yeah, I, yeah, I've seen that too. I wonder if there's like a thing that triggers on a, on a prey animal that like, because you see that a lot. It's not like you don't see, well, I don't know if I've ever seen any zebra mm-hmm. or prey animal like screaming and stuff. Oh, no, I have. You have? Yeah. I always see like the deer just sort of stoic. Oh, like, no, just there's, there's, there's ones where those things are just screaming and oh. not handling it. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's stoic zebras yeah. and there's unstoic zebras. <laughs> That's what I think. All right. Cool. Uh, he's got a little indent here, little section. When a soldier in action sees his life in immediate danger, even the bravest will be seized by a moment of fear. Biologically speaking, fear is a natural reflex sensation of the instinct of self-preservation which dwells within every man, heroes included. Again, what's a little bit interesting about that is like Dean Ladd being on this podcast, going into Tarawa. And I, hey, Dean, were you scared? He's like, no. But it was gonna happen to someone else. Mm-hmm. So maybe even the hyenas think it's gonna happen to someone else. Yeah. That paw ain't gonna hit me. Right, right. I'm not gonna catch a freaking canine tooth <laughs> to the jugular <laughs> right. on this one. If victory is to be won, the, the elementary physical sensation must somehow be artificially suppressed, overcompensated by a contrary reflex of the psychic and moral kind converted into action. Bro, I'm a little bit in disagreement here because I've, I've seen guys that you're just like, well, this guy doesn't care. He doesn't think he can die. Mm. Whatever. <clears throat> walking, walking across the street, running across the street, totally going against. I don't think there's enough time to think, hmm, I want to go drag that guy out of the street, but it looks really dangerous, but I want to prove myself. No, they're like, hey, I'm going to go get that guy because he's hurt. Mm. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about all this, like even the need to write this stuff down. All this stuff pragmatically makes sense, but I've observed people do things in environments that sort of defy some of the things that are being said. So at a bare minimum, there's there's definitely exceptions to this idea that all men have this thing. Mm -hmm. And if they don't all have it, some of them go through whatever that process is in light speed. (laughs) You know, if it's it's still happening and I can't see it, it's happening so quickly that they're just on doing things. I have seen, I have seen people do things that are dumb, mm-hmm. and be like, "Hey, bro, you need to get put your head down." I mean, I, I it, from a basic self preservation, like when sniper fire is a good example. We would take sniper fire pretty regularly, and I've seen guys get so frustrated and so fed up. And I saw a platoon commander once behave just like incorrectly, walking mm-hmm. around on the rooftop, like, "No, this isn't." Moving past the fear, this is uh, some other disconnect there. I know that's not exactly what you're talking about, but I've seen people behave like that. Oh no, I was I was on a rooftop one time, and we started taking fire. And there were some army dudes. I was up there with like a couple army dudes, and we started taking a little bit of fire. And it was you know, ching ching whatever. And I'm just standing there, and the guys kind of got down, 
And I, I was just being, you know, Mr. Ba- Mr. Badass, right? Hey, whatever, no factor. I'm Colonel Kilgore. And then all of a sudden, like another like three rounds ripped really close overhead. Yeah. <laughs> I hit the deck, son. Yeah, yeah. I hit the deck. <laughs> I wasn't so cool anymore. Yeah. So my self preservation was uh, k- kind of kicked in. Yeah, yeah. Those yeah. ones are those ones are close. Yes, your threshold is kind of more further down and, the and line. That, maybe that's different. You got there's a threshold, and you see people have different thresholds. Mm. And some maybe the threshold either doesn't exist or it's so narrow there's no real gap there that you can observe. Um, but to say the way he said it, I agree with you. Like there's, I've seen people do things like that's not what I've seen. Yep. Now it's not doesn't happen all the time, but you see it yeah. for sure. Uh, next, the negative content of this counter reflex is the feeling of shame, if. It says, you don't stand fast now, but run away. The others will laugh at you and despise you. Again, that's a lot of thought to be having in the moment of truth. That's a lot of, I mean, I've done some stuff that was dumb or whatever. I've done some stuff where it's like, "Mm, hey, should I be doing this right now? Maybe not, but I wasn't even thinking about that. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I don't want to look bad. I was like, hey, they're going to go, whatever, across the street, going to go up this, whatever. A soldier must therefore be provided unless nature has done. You know, it's another good example is Mike Thornton. I was, you know, Mike Thornton's just hucking in grenade fights with people. He's shot. People are shot. There's people all around him. And I asked him when he was on the podcast, like, oh, you know, were you thinking you might get shot? And he's like, no, no. He said, no, I didn't have time to think about that. I was going to, going to save my friend. Next question. He was almost embarrassed that I asked that question. He was like, dude, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Uh, a soldier must therefore be provided unless nature has done the job already. Oh, so he's got a little caveat. So there's a possibility that nature just made you brave with a set of automatic inhibitions that will save him in the moment of danger from a collapse of his own morale. Discipline, of course, thank you. Discipline, of course, can hold him steady from without. But his one moral defense against internal weakness is the sense of honor. To arouse this sense in the ordinary soldier, cultivate it, and above all, inspire it by his own example, is the officer's highest duty. And to fulfill that duty, he must himself have a sense of honor that is well-developed, active, and finely tuned. Yeah. That's a lot, that's a of, lot. That's a lot of preconceived yeah. thought. Like the Marine Corps, it back in, what, 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 we coming up on the what anniversary of the Marine Corps? 1775 minus 2022, a couple hundred and a half, whatever, 250 something years of, and in the Marine Corps said, you know what we need to do? We need to create a code of honor so that Marines, they won't run away. Like I can't see that happening. No, and I'm just thinking of the basic fundamental training I've been through as an officer in the Marine Corps, and I don't remember any of that. I remember being given the code of conduct, and there is unquestionably from day one, you don't want to look bad in front of your peers. Right. I know that feeling of getting to like officer candidate school and the basic school and flight school and like, oh, I don't want to look bad. I, I understand that feeling. But there was a lot of words there to describe a situation that almost implies that you're going to have some sort of cognitive process to go, hmm, let me do a quick cost benefit here of running away right. to save my life or you know what my peers will think of me down the road if I do that. I, I can't connect with that. Right, like three months into the basic school, you're like, you know what? If anything happens, I'm not going to run. Yeah. (laughs) Check. Uh, To the extent that a code of honor is reflexive in the sense used by Demeter, it is so inflexible, thereby leading on occasions to behavior that is so irrational as to border on the absurd. That makes sense. 
there are some times where people have done stuff that is doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense what they're doing. Like it's heroic, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make sense, and it's not even good. Uh, the following example illustrates the juxtaposition of bull and honor. The year was 1755. General Braddock set out with his two regiments, the 44th and the 48th, and 600 irregulars on a march to Fort Duquesne. <laughs> About nine miles from it, he was ambushed by Indians led by French officers. The result was disastrous. The men in their scarlet uniforms and white spatter dashes marching in columns were the sort of target ambush forces dream of. You can imagine this. Here comes the literal British redcoats. Here they come marching in columns and they get ambushed by the French and the Indians. Helpless because they could not see their enemies, some of the British troops broke for cover and fired from behind trees. Okay, cool. This appalled Braddock and his officers. They considered skulking behind trees, both undisciplined and unsoldierly, so they drove the Tommies back into columns, where, of course, they were butchered. The whole episode was glaring proof that neither leaders nor the system under which they operated were worthy of the troops they used. But that's like crazy, right? That's crazy. So unthinkable was it that, there's another example, so unthinkable was it that Japanese soldiers would ever surrender to the enemy that they were not instructed as to how they should comport themselves as they did. As a consequence, Japanese POWs were a relatively fruitful source of information for allied interrogators. I never thought about that, because I've always heard that when the Japanese got captured, they would like spill their guts, but I never thought about why. It's because they never got any training. They're just like, oh, you will will just die. No one's gonna surrender. Oh, actually, we're gonna surrender, we're gonna spill our guts. Mm Um, fast forward a little bit, talking about this snob situation. Snobs. Such a good word. A snob is one who is impressed by and therefore tries to identify with those who are higher up in the socioeconomic scale while straining to disassociate himself from those lower down. By these lights, such everyday affections as name dropping and paying society magazines to publish photographs of oneself or one's nearest family are obvious examples of snobbishness. <laughs> Name dropping. Yeah. We know Echo's big on that one. Well, I yeah. get these, uh, what are they called? Chain emails? No, not a chain email, like an automatic email. Yeah, yeah. Spam. Ad- spam emails, right? It'll say, congratulations, Jocko Willink. You have been named as CEO of the year or as entrepreneur of the year or of entrepreneur of the decade. And we, you know, congratulations, this is an incredible thing. And we would want to send you the full magazine that you will be published in along with a plaque recognizing your incredible achievements as a business leader. And the cost is only $1,399. And so it's kind of funny, right? But then you gotta remember, man, I've been to some people's offices where they got some plaques on the walls and now I know where they come from. Now I know where they come from. As a general rule, snobbish behavior betokens some underlying feeling of inferiority. It is a common characteristic of the social climber, of the individual with low self-esteem, of the person who feels threatened or persecuted because of some real or imagined inadequacy. Uh, 
So when you deal with someone that's a snob, they actually are feeling inferior. Mm-hmm. That there is an underlying pathology to the condition seems fairly obvious for two reasons. Firstly, those who are emotionally secure are rarely snobbish. Isn't that a nice thing to know and understand? If you're emotionally secure, you're not gonna be a snob. Secondly, the behavior is itself irrational, compulsive, and self-defeating. After all, even the most hardened snob must know that other people are adept at seeing through his affections. So you're gonna act that way, you know. You know people, because I explain this all the time to clients, and at the muster, I usually have to spend some time on this. Everyone can see what you're thinking. Yeah. Your intent has a smell, it's so obvious. And you know it, <laughs> and you and deep down, you know it. Sometimes it's shocking though, because I don't think people do know it. I think I agree with that. I, no, I mean, to hit what he's, I think that's what he's saying, right? Oh, Isn't he down, saying yes. that, unless I'm hearing you incorrectly, he's saying that deep down you, you know that behavior is observed by other people. And to me, that that's pretty like, that's what makes the behavior crazy, is <laughs> the willingness to, to have that thought and go, no, no, I can get away with I this. Can get away I with can it. I can do this differently. I can see it in him, super obvious. Yeah. But when <laughs> I do this, it's not gonna come across as snobbish. Yeah. That's the part for me is like that's yeah. crazy to think that you can pull it off. That is that is crazy. And I see that all the time. All the time. People think they're so smart. Think no one's noticing these little maneuvers they're making. It's so obvious. Yeah, so remember, well, I remember when we we went in on a little um we were talking about it a lot. Mm-hmm. For some reason, and so I thought about it, and I don't think it's the kind where they think, "Oh, I'm getting away with it." I don't think that's the thought. I think the thought is like they're they're paying attention to what they're saying and all this stuff, but in their mind, instead of "Oh, I look snobby and dumb" or whatever that I'm doing, this name dropping and all that, they don't think that. They think, "Oh, when I name drop, these people are gonna think that I'm as cool as I'm trying to be. Like it's gonna work." Yeah, you but, know? but to Dave's point. They see someone else name drop and they go right. freaking echoes over there trying to name drop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, but there's all, there's little hints of that like way of backwards thinking where it applies to everyone else and not me, right? Like, I'm, yeah, I'm super paranoid about that shit. Bro, and that's a good quality because <laughs> then it, you know, the kind, it's an old joke where people like give great relationship advice, right? They think they give mm. such good relationship advice, but everyone's like, bro, you don't have any good relationships, you True. know, that kind, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So th- it's kind of everywhere where we think that it applies to everyone else and doesn't apply to me. Yeah. Or it applies to me and no one well, else or yes. whatever. You and know? That, that's what Dave's saying. It's yeah. the same thing. It's like, oh, I, this, I can I can name drop. Yes. And it's pretty and cool. And it's effective. Exactly. It's effective. Right. So cool. Yeah. But they see someone else do it and they're yeah. thinking, yeah, name drop. <laughs> Or even the snobby people. I know some snobs, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I get the same impression, kind of like, right? Because snobs, especially when they're behaving in a snobby way, it looks dumb. Like, it's kind of embarrassing, especially if you know the person and like them even a little bit. It's kind of embarrassing. Like, you wish they wouldn't, for their sake, act like that. But you can tell they think, like, oh, my gosh, these people must be so impressed with my with my standards, you Brothers, know, my high standards. Speaking of just random emails, I get these I get invites to podcasts. Yeah, hell yeah. And uh the podcast invite will say, you know, recently had this person. It's just oh, a li- it's, name li- it's yeah. literally just a list of name dropping stuff. Yeah. And I think to myself, bro, what are you doing? Tell me about, you know, what your podcast is about. It's yeah. it, they, they don't even play around. They're just like, have this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. Yeah, yeah. And you think, man. Yeah, they think it there's works. There's a little game too. There's a little uh 
uh, status. You know, yeah. they're one of that. They can get you on, then they can get this person on, then they're listing you at every freaking chance they got. That they, yeah. man, oh uh, yeah, huh? It's freaking savagery in the freaking podcast zone. <laughs> uh, back to the book. There is nothing, for example, quite so transparent as name dropping or displaying invitations. He must know at some level that this behavior provokes at best amusement, at worst ridicule, contempt, or even dislike, but he is nonetheless powerless to curb his snobbishness. <laughs> Something drives him on. I like that. I like, I like the way it takes, like, you have to drive through it. Uh, but why should the military be snobbish? Firstly, because traditionally, top levels of the military hierarchy were occupied by the rich and highly born. The notions of socioeconomic and military status came, uh, it just became completely related. And then it goes on to say, officers are also stressed from within to know that they have wedded their lives to essentially destructive ends, that they should that they shoulder great responsibilities, that they may be called upon to carry out tasks far beyond their capabilities, and that the price of failure is enormous, is quite sufficient to initiate feelings of uneasiness. Even notions of retirement are fraught with stress. The knowledge that most ex-officers have little value on the civilian labor market, that their lot is of total obscurity, of genteel poverty, that they only that only the very best and very worst of full generals and above are likely to achieve immortality, and that none of them will ever again command the absolute obedience to which they have grown accustomed, that can hardly be described as reassuring. Assuring. That's kind of crazy, right? You're in the military. You're an officer. You get out. People are look. You think you're still the man. Ain't happening. To the factors underlying the self-protective and compensating aspects of snobbish snobbishness must be added what is perhaps the most important one of all: pre-existing doubts of the self. Since, as we noted earlier, there is much in militarism to attract those with doubts about their masculinity and intellectual capacity, it would not be surprising to find that a number of men with problems over self-esteem will be discovered at all levels of the military hierarchy. So why do we have a bunch of snobs? Well, because they're insecure about who they are. One piece of corroborative evidence for these views comes from yet another characteristic of many military organizations their notorious sensitivity to criticism. People don't like to be criticized. Fast forward a little bit. In talking of criticism, it might seem that we are making a great deal of fuss about nothing. After all, nobody likes criticism. And as far and as for complaints against military historians, it is only natural, indeed laudable, that some show loyalty to one's group. Because he had gone on to a little thing about how some military historians don't say anything bad about uh Leaders from the military, but he said, you know, he said, oh, that's understandable because they kind of have a little bit of hero worship going on. But he goes on to say, there are some special features of the phenomenon in some military men which deserve attention. In the first place, their sensitivity seems out of all proportion to that of other public figures. In terms of fame or notoriety, well-known generals or admirals are on the level with film stars, politicians, and even newsworthy academics. 
Hence, one would expect that they might come to accept the possibility of negative publicity as part of the game, a small price to pay for the perks which they otherwise enjoy. This they seem unable to do. In fact, there is a distinctly paranoid element in the way some senior commanders have reacted to even the faintest breath of criticism, to the vaguest and most tactful suspicion of a raised eyebrow or cleared throat, almost as if they were being held personally responsible for everything that might go wrong. And by the way, you should be held for accountable for everything. There's a lot of irony in that one. So you get these people that are insecure, and they, um, you know, they end up being snobs. He closes out this section saying, "In touching upon this delicate matter, we must not lose sight of this of its significance and relevance in the present context. Whatever else it may be, sensitivity to criticism is a measure of insecurity." That's so important to remember. You look like so insecure when you get offended by criticism. It implies a weak ego, which in turn, by way of compensation, manifests itself in particular character traits, one of which is snobbishness. Whether this ego weakness is due to some early shock to self-esteem or fear of the breakthrough of unacceptable impulses or some combination of the two influences, the individual so afflicted develops certain defenses which help to minimize his painful feelings. This finds support in yet another feature of military organizations, their cult of anti-effeminacy. Hmm. Going into our next chapter, anti-effeminacy. We don't want to be feminine. We want to be masculine. It says there's a quote in here from General Tra- General Chaffee. Let war cease altogether and a nation will become effeminate. We just need war. Uh, he goes here saying, when discussing the various anxieties which militarism serves to reduce, brief mention was made of the fears which me- some men entertain about their masculinity. This, Thus, it was pointed out that though primarily concerned with combating the dread of disorder and dissolution, certain sartorial aspects of bullshit might also help to reassure those with problems in this area. So what he's saying there is, look, they, 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 you, you impose discipline because you're anti-feminist. Hey, we're not anti-feminine. Yeah, not anti-feminist, anti-feminist, feminine. Yeah. Or feminacy. Effeminacy. Effeminacy. And and that some of these, you know, wearing uh you know, imposing your will on people means you're you're you know, you're not like feminine. Right. Like are we getting into the kind of the weird zone of this book? A little bit. Uh he says in putting together the jigsaw of military incompetence, therefore we now we can now take up a piece one piece which clearly has great relevance to the topic. The striking aversion towards effeminacy which characterizes some military organizations and this despite the fact that the female is usually regarded as, quote, more deadly than the male. Okay, so I had to, I don't know, this was written in 1976. Obviously, this is a a topic that might be addressed differently today, but what I did want to do, what I did look up is, I said, okay, what is it? What is a feminine characteristic and what is a masculine characteristic, characteristic, generally speaking? Yeah. Now, okay, I'm just gonna read them first. 
masculine. This is coming from some website about psychology, right? Masculine, strong, controlled, focused, powerful, centered, purpose-driven, loves the challenge and competition, single task-oriented, problem-solver, wants freedom and release, makes big things small, forgets, needs admiration and appreciation, wants to be needed and respected. There, the, the masculine intimacy killer is being criticized, controlled, or shut out. So those are the masculine uh, characteristics. Here's the feminine characteristics. Free, flowing, open, radiant. Radiant. Wild, destructive, emotion-driven, seeks and gives love, nurturer, multitasker, diffused awareness, wants to gather, talk, vent, makes small things big, remembers, needs reassurance and attention, wants trust, connection, and praise, the intimacy killer is feeling unseen, unsafe, or misunderstood. Now, um, clearly, these things, every human has both these things in a spectrum, and you could call, you didn't, I think what makes them challenging to talk about in this day and age is they put man and woman on them. Mm. What they should have done is said, you know, uh, just black and white, right? Two, two, yin and yang. Yeah, yin, oh, yin and yang would have been perfect, right? So you got the yin personality, you got the yang personality. Here's how they are not necessarily men and women, because let's face it, we know a lot of women that are strong, controlled, and focused. We know a lot of men that are free, flowing, open, radiant, right? So these, but I think they're generally speaking, psychologically, here are some characteristics. So that's where we're at. Dave, are you concerned yet? <laughs> Is this the freaking podcast that gets us banned finally? I don't know. No, no I'm concerned at the depth that this guy is going into to explain what I think is going to be a series of behaviors that we're going to discuss that are really deep. Yes. I, it's, it's interesting because what he's saying is and what he says is that the military can shut out these feminine characteristics and that's not good. Good. Yeah. That that's what he's about to say. Yeah. That one of the negative characteristics of a militaristic organization is it doesn't have enough of the feminine characteristics. For instance, free and open mind, right? Those are bad. If you don't have those, those you're you're in a bad bad situation. So, he goes on to say uh evidence of this aversion is of necessity circumstantial. It embraces such phenomena. So here's some things that kind of show maybe this this anti-effeminate role that you have in the military. One, the importance attached to such outward signs of sex role identification as hair length. <laughs> Since the insistence on short back and sides seems correlated with those periods in history when sexual differentiation was linked to hair length, we can dismiss excuses of neatness and hygiene as rationalizations. Field Marshal Lord Woolsey stated the true case when he said, it is very difficult to make an Englishman at any time look like a soldier. He is fond of his longish hair. Hair is the glory of a woman, but the shame of a man. <laughs> uh, so what he's saying is, listen, it's not about hygiene. It's not about convenience, which by the way, I totally disagree with this. I think having short hair is totally uh, convenient, low maintenance, hygienic, neat. 
right? That's why I have the hair that I have. When when my hair gets longer than three quarters of an inch, which it hasn't been for a long time, I, I can't stand it. I don't think, dang, I kinda look, wait, I'm, I'm looking like a, like a woman, I need to shave my head right now. Not even in the ballpark. So, dude, I think he's stretching here. I think he's doing a stretch. In fact, the other thing is, how do you make, how do you bring uniformity to a person's hair? Oh, yeah. You cut it off. Otherwise, you know, you have some dude with long red hair, you got some other dude with curly hair, you got another dude with, uh, with uh, no hair, you know, you got all these different hairstyles, and uh, now all of a sudden, we look different. We're not yeah. trying to look different. And you know how like when people, girls and guys, by the way, they have like longer hair and it starts to go in front of their face and they mm-hmm. like whip it back, oh, right, yeah. with their head? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a functionality thing, I get it, but it looks pretty feminine. Okay. What, what about when you see a fighter, a professional fighter in the Ultimate Fighting Championship and he has to adjust his hair while he's fighting, by the way. Same gig, man. Right? Same gig. Hey, it doesn't make him any less of a fighter. Yeah. Right? I guess technically, right, you got to do one more step for efficiency or whatever, I guess. But, Can't you know, isn't that a sexual thing when girls do that? Like flip their hair? That's like a that's like a mating thing, right? I, th- I was just sure. thinking of Clay Guida watching that dude fight. And just <laughs> like, bro, how do you see? And he's constantly messing with his hair. And it didn't yeah. seem to affect him all that much. That's but. true. And his hair was so freaking wild. It yeah. was almost like a target disruptor. Yeah. Like you'd oh, be yeah. seeing his hair would be moving around. Same thing with big ass beards. Like how does that not throw off your punch to someone's chin when they've oh, got yeah. a beard, yeah. a big beard? That's a problem. I, I don't know if this is true. But I distinctly remember being told, and I, I don't even know who told me, but your hair, the, one of the reasons they talked about your hair being short is they didn't want somebody to be able to use your hair as a, as a way to manipulate your head during hand-to-hand combat. You yeah, didn't want to grab your head. And, you know, so I don't remember that being like in a regulation as the explanation, but being told, hey, if the guy can grab your hair and pull your head because yep. your hair's too long, you're that, wrong. That's to put you at a disadvantage. You can't do that. So, 100%. Yeah. My, I've always, my rule, well, it's just my rule of me, but I, I will say I kind of talked to my son about this. However, maybe I'm wrong. Didn't didn't really tell my daughters this. I said, hey, if your hair is long enough for someone to grab, then that's a problem. You don't want to have hair that's long enough for someone to grab. I told that to my son. I didn't. I might have told to my daughters, but I didn't enforce it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't enforce it. Right? So yeah. I guess I'm whatever. Uh, uh, what is that? Sexist? Yeah. No, you're not sexist, but you know. Yeah, what is it when you treat someone different, right? You discriminate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, whatever. Although I've told all, I told all my daughters, like, hey, I can take care of this problem. We, t- we can shave that head. I always offer my daughters haircuts. They've n- never said yes. Yeah, I say I say it as a joke. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if I'd want to shave my daughter's head, but I told my son the same thing. I was like, yeah, hey, you do want it short. Yep. So when you get in a fight or whatever, they can't grab your head mm-hmm. or the, your hair like that. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, that makes that's sense. That's what it is, double standard. Double right? standard. I had yep, the double standard. It's true. The doubles. Although I didn't. I gave them the ch- option. Yeah, but you didn't enforce it, though. Wait, didn't did you enforce it. it with your son, though? No, but I mean, it kind of makes sense. Hey, man. Hey. So as far as your role and your level of enforcement, it was the same. Oh, hey, how they behave, that's different. Yeah. They got different lives. Yeah. I get it. You know, but hey, man, no discrimination. I kind of thought I might get my middle, when my middle daughter was wrestling, yeah. you know, and going into some freaking savagery. Yeah, they don't go there in wrestling, might. though, yeah? Or they do? No, they don't. But still, let's face it. <laughs> it's the principle. <laughs> let's face it. You roll in, you're, you're a female wrestler, and you roll in with the shit. It's kind of like Thug Rose, right? Yeah, yeah. Are we sure. not looking at Thug Rose thinking, hell yeah? We are. We are looking at Thug Rose <laughs> thinking, hell yeah. <laughs> Even her opponent. Yeah. She oh, yeah, her, her last head. one. Yeah, yeah. 
She didn't have her head shaved the first time. But, you know, my daughter would get the cornrow braids, like the real tight braids. That's kind of a war mode, too. You can't grab those, by the way. Yeah, I mean, in the back, you can. Yeah, well, if you have some kind of a ponytail sticking out the back. But for some reason, my daughter didn't really have that. They were just tight. Hmm. Interesting. Well done. Well, isn't it the same for beard, though? Like a big beard? Totally. Like you can I grab see the a big beard. beard, and I'm like, brah. Yeah. Like if you're, gonna be it's the same. exact same thing. Yeah. I look at someone with a big beard, I think, mm, Just handle you must that. be super, super double extra confident to yeah. think that someone's not going to freaking get a wrist wrap on that bad boy and slam your head <laughs> in the pavement. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I feel I feel like the beard is in an, a less opportune position. I guess technically, still very useful, yeah. very useful. Yeah. But you know, on the top of the head, that's like I'd say there's like a good level or two more control. Yeah, it's very shocking when I see guys with long hair. Again, you must have a lot of confidence that someone's not going to grab you and. That's one of my favorite takedowns on the battlefield. Just grab a handful of hair and Bro, slam people down. It works good. Bro, watch the girl fights on YouTube. Well, oh, if you yeah, have the time. Right. Bro, that's that's going to be the default at some mm-hmm. point. They're just going to grab hair. And it's like they kind of nullify both attacks yep, yep. when they're both grabbing hair. So, it's man, it's like proof, you know, in the field. Yeah. Field proven field combat proven. scenario. <laughs> Drunk chicks <laughs> scrapping it out on YouTube. It's totally true. It's totally true. <laughs> okay. This is a rough topic. Traditional taboos on certain topics and pastimes. Thus, we find Captain Foley, commander of Britannia Naval Training Establishment for officer cadets at Dartmouth, forbidding piano playing because he considered it effeminate. So these are the kind of dudes that are weird, right? This dude's got issues. Yeah. You know, and he's going hard against piano playing because he's got some weird stuff going on in yeah. his head, right? Yeah. Uh, another one, a deeply rooted prejudice toward women who try to adopt traditional male roles. See that? Yeah. Finally, an equation between defensive behavior and effeminacy. So if you're on defense, that means you're being effeminate. The feeling that it is sissy to wear, to wear ear protectors or build head covers has undoubtedly caused much unnecessary unnecessary destruction of the human body. Hmm. It is not an unreasonable hypothesis to suggest that its most glaring and costly illustration occurred in connection with the issue of convoys. In the First World War, hundreds of thousands of tons of merchant shipping was lost through the Navy's refusal to adopt the convoy system. When Lloyd George eventually forced convoys upon an unwilling admiralty, losses fell significantly. So their idea was, hey, I'm in charge of my ship. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go with a pack. I'm not weak. Right. I'm not going in a convoy. Yeah, That's yeah. weak. I'm a man, and I'm gonna take this thing solo. And they were losing <laughs> ships all the time. Finally, someone said, hey, bro, you guys gotta stick together. Yeah. Uh, the lesson was plain for all to see. But in the years between the wars, the same irrational dislike of mothering a flock of ships prevented the development of an efficient escort system. So the Brits, the Brits started taking losses in World War One, I, I mean World War Two. Same freaking bad move. Then the Amer- then America entered the war, and unbelievably, in the face of overwhelming evidence, insisted on trying to defeat U U boats without the use of convoys. Same thing. This is World War Two. We already know that you should stick together. <clears throat> Between December 1941 and the following March, American losses of merchant shipping grew to the staggering monthly 
total of 500,000 tons. Eventually, the price of aggressive masculinity embodied in the so-called patrol and hunting operations of isolated warships proved too costly and convoys were instituted between Boston and Halifax. Losses on this route promptly dropped to zero. But south of Boston's, Boston, ships still sailed independently until June. The number of ships sunk reached an all-time record of 700,000 tons in a single month. They still didn't do it. It's considered weak. It's considered feminine. Yeah. That's, that, okay. Hindsight 2020. Mm-hmm. I get it. But when you kind of think of the big picture, it makes more sense than it might appear at, at first. Because remember back in the day when seat belts weren't, uh, what do you call legal like or it was legal still to not wear right. your seatbelt right, right. And then there's like and then there's a little transition period where it's like yeah if you don't wear your seatbelt it's kind of like ah like uh, you're being what are you scared like kind of mm-hmm. weak or whatever same thing with the kids and the helmets mm-hmm. like oh yeah you're just yep. riding in the cul-de-sac right now Brad. the helmet is that even necessary yep. or you see the kids with the elbow pads you know it's kind of like okay cool you're <laughs> safe but come on let's face it, that's kind of weak you know um and but let's the truth is, bro. If if you care about like the safety mm-hmm. or whether it be efficiency, safety, yeah. uh, not dying, right. like all these things, bro, the helmet's gonna make a lot of sense, right? After a while, yep. you're gonna kind of realize that then it's like, okay, what's more cool now, living or not wearing that helmet? Yep, see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's a good one. That's a, so I see. I see what you're the saying. The state so, of mind is what I'm saying. So it took these guys a little while to get over the state of mind. Like, hey, we kind of look like a sissy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because of we're going in a convoy. Yeah, I don't need nobody holding my hand. Yeah, you know, I got this. Like, yeah. Did oh, any, by, go sorry. ahead. Did any of your dudes not want to wear iPro? Remember iPro? Those clear. In what situation? Yeah, in Ramadi, going out in, in in on literally going out on a mission. Yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> and go. I'll tell you why it had nothing to do with if depending on how much movement was taking place sweaty that fog up. just yeah, get yeah. sweaty and fog totally. I sweat a lot yeah. and they would be not they wouldn't be functional for me that's that is a yep. that, a legitimate that's reason. a legitimate reason to do it to plus to, do I look like a sissy yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> just no well, I, that that if you could wear iPro you should if you can you should yeah and I only ask that because I remember that being a like long conversation with with folks uh, uh, not just on my team but all the people we're, we're with about not wearing iPro out on missions mm-hmm. not the fogging and the sweating right, notwithstanding right. which I fully understandable and there's different ways different ones to do it and dudes didn't want to do it because they didn't like the way it looked mm-hmm. really well all you had to do is authorize them to wear freaking sunglasses and yeah, then all of a sudden so you can't get them to take no them factor, off yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's weird though because I always wear sunglasses always always wear sunglasses but I never wore sunglasses in the field yeah. Ever, and yeah. I don't know. Huh. I, they seem like just in the way. Plus, they would fog up. They would get sweaty. Yeah. Is there anything in? Um, I guess in the battlefield, it, it might be more black and white. But like in training mm. or something like that, where it's like maybe something optional or something that people don't want to wear or do. That's f- for safety reasons. But it's like uh, it's like it's not cool or it's like all kinds or whatever. Of like, yeah. what, like what? There's a ton of things. In, in aviation, gloves are always a big one. Gloves, yeah, yeah. Dudes didn't want to wear gloves. Mm-hmm. And then they'd always show like these like, videos of like post-ejection trauma to your hands or fingers getting literally, they'd call it getting degloved oh, yeah. when your um, skin would come off your hand and leave, and leave the um, 
the bone behind that have pictures of guys exiting the cockpit on ejections and stuff or getting burned and things like that. But flight gloves would stop you from getting degloved? Yes. So um, if you had like a, a, like a, a ring or, or, or you're oh, climbing yeah. up or something like that and, and um, you didn't have something covering that, that could get caught. Mm-hmm. There's a famous picture. All the Any aviator listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a famous picture in like the Gazette or whatever a magazine of a dude's hand on the table like this who was wearing his wedding ring and his hands there this whole thing is gone all this arrows is, is the the remaining piece of bone left on his hand mm. you know trying to get people to wear gloves mm. people didn't want to wear gloves did you wear a wedding ring yes under your gloves <laughs> yes did you always wear gloves yes i was a glove wearer <laughs> and then why would you not want to wear gloves the complaint was like, oh, it's the tactile, like I want to press the mm. buttons and turn the knobs and it's harder to feel and like, you Can you know, cut the fingertips off? Yes. Did you do that? No. Just full on. I just wore gloves. Now, what would eventually happen is like you'd wear through them and sometimes the fingers would, actually, you probably even see them in the videos, I'm like moving my things up and down and the gloves are kind of frayed and whatnot. Mm. But um, it was just to your point, it was a conversation mm-hmm. that I always found odd. To be quite honest, the reason I wore gloves is like the first day of flight school, the guy was like, you will wear your gloves. I'm like, okay, Roger that. I'm not here <laughs> to like, used to it. I'm not here to like tell you I don't like the way it feels. I didn't even think about it. I put my gloves on and strapped them on and that was the end of that. Mm-hmm. I never found my own style. Mm-hmm. Like having like, you know, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wasn't in my, I didn't, well, I wasn't, didn't care or think about those things. And you got used to it. Totally. And, and once you get used to it, it doesn't really matter. It's no factor. And right. Yeah, it's no factor at all. But there are people that, these are conversations and I think to the point is like, those conversations about I'm not wearing this for the functionality versus I don't like the way it looks. Those mm-hmm. are two totally different things. You tell me mm-hmm. it gets fogged up, I can't see sweat. I remember sweat beads running down the glass. I'm like these things are gone mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. Versus as I look in the mirror, I'm all, I'm all kitted up, about to go and go. I don't like the way I look. Yeah. I'm not I'm not having those conversations in my mind about how I look when I'm doing this. Yeah, well, it, the fact of knowing you can get your freaking shrapnel in your eyes. You know, little chunks of uh, yeah. brass in your eyes, little chunks of crap in your eyes. Like that sucks. Especially Dave Burke, who has a hundred percent plan of going back to flying an airplane mm. when this whole ground situation yeah. is over. You are <laughs> my, like I'm a preserving my eyes, dude. <laughs> <laughs> eyes are number one protected. Uh, um, so he goes on to this section here where he starts using this term "butch," and it's not it. It's just basically saying like I, I guess we'd say like hyper manly like a manly man he uses this term butch mm-hmm. he says by selecting and promoting on the basis of such butch criteria as size strength physical courage and prowess at games the armed forces tend to ignore other attributes which really may be of even greater importance to a senior commander intelligence high educational level resistance to breakdown under stress and substantial reserves of moral courage well clearly this goes down where we're just picking the kind of the toughest dude to be in charge instead of the smartest dude not that the smartest dude is necessarily the right one either because we see smart people that are really dumb <laughs> there is of course a counter argument namely that generals should be heroic leaders which would necessitate them having at least some of the aforementioned butch traits sheer physical size the possession of decorations for bravery and a fine rugger record would According to this argument, confer invaluable leadership qualities upon top military commanders. Unhappily, this mili- this theory does not stand up. And by rugger, he means a rugby player. Um, <clears throat> being good at rugger in no way ensures the best qualities of military leadership. 
so-called masculine attributes count for very little in comparison with personality and knowing one's job. The most cursory glance at military history suggests that many of the really great military and naval commanders, Napoleon, Nelson, Wolfe, for instance, were men of brain and character, not of huge bodies with dazzling records in the field of sport. Of generalship, Montgomery says, the science and art of command involves an intimate knowledge of human nature. A commander must think two stages ahead. He speaks glowingly of the physical, physically frail Wolf and Nelson, describing the latter as a brilliant seaman and most original, intelligent, and courageous fighter. In the same vein, he comments on the flexibility and brilliant intellect of Napoleon. But nowhere does the field marshal um, talk about the advantages of fine physique, hairy masculinity, and a reputation for long-distance running polo or boxing. So, these manly traits, butch traits, according to this book, yeah. might not be the most important thing. In fact, he's indicating that they are not the most important thing. We are concerned to relate and explain two indisputable phenomenon. So-called peaceful generals who in times of stress reveal themselves as passive, dependent, and indecisive, and the anti-effeminacy ethos of some military organizations. To handle these facts, the following points were made. Some men, for reasons rooted in early family situation, have serious doubts about their sexual adequacy and or physical strength and size. Such men may deal with their feelings of inferiority by adopting a compensatory style of life in which they strive for reassurance in some suitably symbolic role. The prevailing ethos of many military organizations provides this reassurance. Hence, a percentage of men will seek acceptance by the armed forces simply because such acceptance is a warranty of their masculinity. Once in their continuing and underlying feat of a fear of effeminacy produces that well-known pattern of behavior which we have termed butch. But this behavior is is itself highly valued in the armed forces. Hence, the individual not only profits by, but also contributes to the anti-effeminacy of his parent organization. It is in his interest to do so. And last, the significance of all this for military incompetence is that butch characteristics are not perhaps the most important criteria for top-level leadership. So he's talking about, and when I was thinking about this, you definitely see some people like this where you can see that they're in the military to try and maybe compensate for some fears in their own head. And I think it's real obvious, just like we talk the obviousness of someone that's a snob, someone that's a name dropper. Because let's face it, there's some guys in the military that are 100% badass military dudes and like that's just how they are. Uh, This idea that you get some people that are countering their innate feminine traits by just trying to act super tough. You see some of those guys, I don't think it's very widespread. You certainly see some of them, but it's not It's not that common. When you see it, it's very obvious that that's what you're dealing with. They're usually over the top with their behavior. Uh, but then I think the most important thing that he's saying is that in the military, sometimes that y- you start to focus on that. And we don't want someone that's gonna 
raise their hand and and have an open mind to stuff or gonna gonna I mean think about some of these feminine feminist traits that are good multitasker right wants to talk communicate remembers things um, f- free flowing and open right emotion driven we talk all the time about the fact that we don't want people to make emotional decisions but you don't want someone that doesn't have any emotion because that's how you end up with a commander that's just sending people to their death. So to, well, that's why we wrote the dichotomy of leadership. All these masculine and feminine traits, you need them both. And you need to have balance. You need to have balance in the individuals, and then you need to have balance in a unit. You might have, you're gonna need some people in your platoon that just are killers. But if you have a whole platoon filled with killers, that's gonna be a problem. And you need to have some people in your, platoon that are very empathetic. But if you have a whole platoon of empathetic people, you're not gonna be able to get any missions done. So you need a balance of these feminine feminine and masculine traits. You need to have the proper balance of yin and yang. Yes, sir. So where does toxic masculinity fit fit into all that? Or is this just talking about toxic masculinity, but but since it was written back in, you know, before the term was. Before the term. The toxic masculinity, I wrote an article about this one time. Toxic masculinity is when you take any of the mas- considered traditional masculine traits and you take them to an extreme. Yeah. And then you end up with uh, someone that's, quote, toxic masculine. So here's the thing. When I wrote that article, I wrote about, because they were saying, you know, being competitive is a toxic masculine trait. No, it's not. It's a good trait to have. Yeah. Uh, being strong. That's a masculine trait. Is it toxic? No. Do uh, what's another one? Um, being purpose driven—that's a masculine trait, according to this list. Is that a bad thing? If you take it to an extreme, where you got someone that's—they just want to win and then smash yeah, yeah. people. Yeah, that's bad. If you want someone that wants to be just so strong and powerful that they'll just step on other people, that's bad. So if you take any of these things to an extreme, they're a problem. And what I ended up saying in that article, there's. These, these are good characteristics for, for a person to have, including my three daughters. Mm. I want my daughters to be assertive. I want them to be strong. I want them to be competitive. What, what you want your, don't want your daughters to be like that? No, of course. You want your sons to be like that too. Do you want your, any of your kids to go too far in, in those directions? No, absolutely not. So the toxic masculinity, I think, is when you start taking any of these characteristics to the extreme, it becomes a problem. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm wondering just if this is essentially like what he's talking about before it was actually like a phrase. Yeah, and I think if you get an organization where they've gone too far in one direction, it's a problem. Yeah. Now, Wilson, we got just people that are just following orders, just ultra obedient, because that's what the the masculine thing is. We just wanna we we want to obey and be part of the team. Okay, cool. Yeah. Not good. Chapter 20, leaders of men. How can the ability to lead depend on the ability to follow? You might as well say that the ability to float depends on the ability to sink. That's an interesting quote, which I don't agree with. The ability to lead, you don't necessarily, no, sorry. In order to follow, you don't necessarily, doesn't doesn't mean necessarily you're gonna be a good leader, but if you're gonna be a good leader, you better know how to follow as well. So that quote right there, which is from the Peter Principle, don't agree with it. 
Whatever its other causes, military incompetence implies a failure in leadership. This is hardly surprising of psychological problems which beset military officers. Few exceed in severity those associated with leadership. In this respect, they are required to fulfill incompatible roles. They are expected to show initiative, yet remain hemmed in by regulations. They must be aggressive, yet never insubordinate. They must be assiduous in caring for their men, yet maintaining an enormous social distance. They must know everything about everything, yet never appear intellectual. Finally, as we saw in the last chapter, they may well have been selected for attributes almost totally unrelated to the task they are expected to perform. So that's an entire list of dichotomies of leadership, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> Sir. Discussions of leadership is so often overloaded with vague but emotive ideas that one is hard to put the nail, to nail the concept down. So now he's trying to come up with a, with a definition for leadership. <clears throat> to cut through the panoply of such quasi-moral and unexceptionable associations as patriotism. Play up and play the game. Never asking your men to do something you wouldn't do for yourself. Not giving up. The square jaw, frank eyes of steadfast gaze. These are all like these sort of leadership things. If you'll, if you'll be a man recipe. So he's given all these kind of traditional quotes about leadership. And then he gives his. The simple truth that leadership is no more than exercising such an influence upon others that they tend to act in concert towards achieving a goal which they might not have achieved so readily had they been left to their own devices. Fair enough. Is that an epic definition of leadership? Not really. But it's a decent one. The ingredients which bring about this favorable state of affairs are many and varied. The most superficial level, at the most superficial level, they are believed to include such factors as voice, stature and appearance, impression of omniscience, trustworthiness, sincerity, and bravery. At a deeper and rather more important level, leadership depends on a proper understanding of the needs and opinions of those one hopes to lead and the context in which leadership occurs. So that's a great definition. Well, not so much a definition, but it's a great point. Hey, your voice, your stature, your trustworthiness, your sincerity, your bravery, those things are all important. But guess what's even more important? Understanding the needs and opinions of the people you're leading. That's what he's saying right there. So he nails that part straight up. In short, there's nothing mysterious, romantic, or necessarily laudable about leadership in military organizations. Leaders are appointed rather than emergent. That is to say, the needs of the individual soldier play almost no role in deciding the sort of leader he gets. Secondly, the military leader possesses constitutional power of a magnitude which surpasses that of leaders in most other human groups. If he cannot pull his followers by force of character, he can at least push them by force of law. Eh, I don't really buy into that too much. That's like, you know, because in the civilian world, oh, you don't want to do what I'm telling you? Cool, I'm going to fire you. Which you can do, just like in the military, you can say, shut up and do what I told you to do because I, you know, I, I have the backing of the Constitution behind me. Neither one of those are good leadership, and they won't pan out for very long. The third and related feature of military leadership is that it, essentially, it is an essentially autocratic and operates in what modern theorists call a wheel net rather than an all-channel communication net. 
In other words, the flow of essential information is to and fro between the leader and his subordinates rather than between all members of the group. Not very surprisingly, the wheel net, though no doubt gratifying to autocratic leaders, produces more errors, slower solutions to problems, and reduced gratification to the group than does the more democratic all-channel net. That's interesting. You want to participate with your whole group. I think that's how I operate. It doesn't really matter who comes with an idea. We're good with it. Let's share it. In light of these considerations, it is perhaps strange that leadership in the British Armed Forces should have been as effective as it has. So he's like saying it's amazing that the British military was so effective because they freaking operate on these principles that suck. (laughs) Since a salient feature of all, and by the way, you want to know why? The soldiers. The soldiers get the job done. Since a salient feature of all the campaigns so far considered has been a remarkable absence of the mutinous tendencies and a quite astonishing degree of tolerance, fortitude, and bravery shown by the common soldier, we have to ask, was this despite or because of their leaders? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say despite in many cases. Yeah. It, I saw this with many, many platoons over the years. You could have bad leadership, but if you have a few pipe hitters in there, they will make things happen. And that platoon will be successful, even with bad leadership. Despite the leadership, they'll be successful. The first point of note is the distinction that has to be drawn between two roles of a leader, task specialist and social specialist. A task specialist's, a leader's prime concern, as, sorry, as a task specialist, a leader's prime concern is to achieve the group's goal in the case of the military defeating the enemy. For such a role, being likable is rather less important trait than that of being more active, more intelligent, and better informed than his followers. In his capacity as a social specialist, however, a leader's main function is to preserve good personal relations with the group and within the group, thereby maintaining morale as to keep the group in being. In the military, Melu, the function of a successful social specialist would prevent mutiny and reduce such symptoms as low morale, absenteeism, desertion, sickness, and crime. Not very surprisingly, the most important attribute of such a leader is that he should be liked. Efficiency and task ability are of rather secondary importance. So this is something uh, I think I wrote in Leadership Strategy and Tactics. What is a leader trying to do? Build relationships in that team. Not just between yourself, but between the whole team. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're here for. And that task thing kind of works itself out. If you're doing a good job building those relationships, that task thing's going to kind of handle itself. I'm just having such a hard time. He's using so many words. And and I, what I'm actually trying to do is is get my head wrapped around like 1970s England. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> because it's like, hey, how about I take those 12 pages and just write balance? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and and yeah, even inside that, just like you, and I think the order in which you said it is the right thing, is if, he called it like democratic, we all feel part of it. Listen, everybody thinks I care about you. If my people think I care about them, they're gonna get on board with the plan. Mm-hmm. And if I'm an autocrat and I tell people what to do and they have to do what I say no matter what, they're gonna struggle with the plan. And if you go with that second, that, that first one, they'll do even harder things that are more challenging, more life-threatening, and less likely to be successful on paper, or at least to their own risk, 
than if they don't think that I care about mm. them. They'll be less likely to do hard things like combat. Yeah. And then inside that, the little subtle point, and I'm glad you said it because I had the exact same thought, is even when that leadership doesn't reveal itself, which it clearly has not, there's another layer of leadership inside there. You know, yeah. you, you could call it your NCOs, whatever the term that you want to use, those those pipe hitters inside the organization, they're still going to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, and just to make sure everyone understands, when you want your team to think you care about them, how do you make that happen? You, care you have about to care about them. <laughs> and I shouldn't say, I should use a different word. When they believe that. Not when they think that, like I'm trying to convince them of that. Yeah. When they come to believe that and go, oh. Yep. This guy he, cares about He me. really does. That's, that is a, that's a better way to describe, and that's really what you're saying. Not that I... I, I manipulate them to thinking that it's when they recognize it for themselves and they and they see that yeah. and they believe that it Says here it has been shown that whereas low stressed groups operating in situations that are devoid of painful uncertainties do best under democratic leadership Organizations like the military in times of war that are subject to stressing ambiguities actually prefer autocratic leadership in other words, the feelings of dependency induced by stress successful, successfully neutralize a person's normal um, aversity toward an, the autocratic leader. While a man like Townsend would not be likely to survive for very long in a modern civilian firm, his autocratic mean was lovingly accepted by men whose lives were hanging by a thread. <clears throat> so the reason that he points all this out is that these guys, some of these guys like Townsend, they still listened to him. They obeyed him. And what's interesting about this is he's making a huge generalization of organizations like the military in times of war subject to stressing ambiguities prefer autocratic leadership. Let me tell you where the subtlety here is. 97% 98%, 99% of the time, even in a war, we want democratic leadership. And there is a moment in time where there's confusion, where there's chaos, where there's mayhem, where everyone is looking at the leader to make a call. That happens in the military, it happens in business too. I mean, uh, when Echelon Front hit COVID, right? Hey, we heard a bunch of ideas and then I became a little bit autocratic. It's like, hey, here's what we're doing, yeah. boom. And everyone was stoked, yeah. going, oh, hell yeah, that's what we're doing. They were. And the thread that's inside both of those, and I think why autocratic behavior when you're the recipient of that, why you're willing to be treated like that or directed, if I have already made the connection in my mind that the thing that you're making me do, that you're directing me to do, is designed to help me, mm-hmm. keep me alive, when my when that, that thread hangs, in the, or the life hangs in the balance, whatever the word he just used there, if I make that connection and go, He's telling me to do this, and what I know, what he, I know why he's telling me this. Dude, I'll follow orders all day long. It doesn't even bother me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me told what to do to be mandated anything from my boss. If I go, oh, I see what's happening here. Yep. I'm going to go execute. Now, if you spend your whole career being an autocrat and just telling me what to do, dude, I got news for you. Even when you actually need in those rare two, three percent occasions, you need to do that. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a very, very hard time getting your people to follow you. Yeah, this is a point that I made deeply in leadership strategy and tactics when I talk about leadership in a va- in the leadership vacuum. 
And I mean, I went into some specifics in there, like letting that vacuum exist for just a second longer just to make sure everyone feels it. I would make sure, I'd wait an extra half a second or one second before I said anything to make sure everyone knew, oh damn, we don't know what we're doing right now. And they are waiting to be led. They are waiting for that, that autocratic leader to step and say, everyone lock it up, we're moving to that building. And they are so on board for that. If you make that call a little too early, you get resistance. Some people, hey, how do you know what? No, you gotta let it, you gotta yeah. let it just, let it be there for a moment. Let everyone see, oh, it's a vacuum. I don't know what to do. And then boom. And if you wait too long, well then other people are chirping in with their ideas, you can get some confusion. So you gotta time that very well. But, but it's unfortunate that he says, he kind of blankets the whole thing, because it's not true. It's not a blanket statement. Even in war, people wanna have more say as what's happening. He's also doing one thing that, that I don't agree with either is he's drawing some contrast between this military leader and that military leader's inability to be successful in the private sector because the military responds to these type of behaviors and the private sector doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, when he's talking about that, he's talking about the fact that if you have an uh, authoritarian leader in the civilian it, it's gonna be less successful. Here's a point that I made the other day, which you actually, no, I agree with you. You're right, that doesn't make sense. Here, here's why, and he doesn't point this out in this book, I pointed this out the other day. In the military, bad leaders can get promoted easier than bad leaders can get promoted in the civilian sector. Why is that? Because in the military, you're gonna be in charge. How long were you in charge of your squadron for? Two years. And that's what that's what a military leader gets. Yep. So. You get two years, and by the time the enlisted guys figure out this guy's a jackass, it takes him six months to confirm that, and then it's like, okay, well, now we're starting our work up. We can actually do anything. Oh, hey, he'll be gone. Forget about it. And that guy, Dave Burke, gets promoted because he did his job. He did it correctly. No one said anything. Boom. Whereas the civilian world, like you're in charge of that whatever division for years, yeah. <laughs> and everybody knows it. That's another thing. Military, oh, you, oh, you did one, you know, one command deployment here in Virginia, then you're going to San Diego, then you're going to Bahrain, then you're, go- you're just traveling around and you can get away with it. So that's one of the reasons I think why the, uh, why the military can produce some bad leaders yes. and they can get promoted. Yeah. As long as that comment you made is understood that this success in the private sector comparison to the success in the military sector, your point is the bad leaders might stick around. They're not good leaders by virtue of the military environment. They're bad leaders that are being, that are sticking around because right. the military has a mechanism that sort of allows for it. But just, I just, I don't like the thought that there's a distinction that military leader, good military leadership is different from other types of leadership. Oh, yeah. That's 100% accurate. Yeah. Fast forward a little bit. But even given the right circumstances, an autocratic mean is no bar to being liked. We still need some more positive reasons for this extraordinary popularity of otherwise incompetent commanders. So he talks about the fact that, like, why do you still like, why did these guys like Townsend, who got a bunch of his men killed, why did they still like him? Why did they still follow him? Um, One of the reasons he talks about is successful leadership attended to occur if followers had been indulged by their leaders. That makes sense, right? Oh, if you had actually taken care of your guys, they would be more likely to follow you. Well, that makes sense. 
That actually makes sense. That's a good reason. Um, a situation in which the motivational as opposed to the intellectual aspects of leadership may lead to military disasters where obedience evoked by hero worship blunts reason and moral sensitivity to such an extent that the group may embark on a behavior which is little short of suicidal. Again, he's trying to figure out why in some situations do people that are idiots still get followed. Uh, There is, however, one further aspect of these more nebulous qualities of leadership which has played a not inconsiderable part in the story of military incompetence. It, It concerns the position which an individual occupies on two related continua those of boldness to caution and impulsiveness to indecision. Over the years of military incompetence has resulted more from a dearth of boldness than from a lack of caution and more from a pall of indecision than an excess of impulsivity. So he's saying that most of the problems that occur, don't, they don't occur because action is taken to impulsive action. They actually call, happen for the other reason don't want to do anything. That's why the term default aggressive exists. Because if you don't do anything, chances are it's gonna be bad. Your default mode should be to make something happen. Real quick, not to interrupt. So autocratic, what exactly is that? It's close to authoritarian, but it's weird. He, He uses the term autocratic. It's like, hey, I'm in charge, I'm in control. It's one person in control, charging in control. But he differentiates between autocratic, meaning like, listen, hey, I'm the guy in charge, I'm gonna tell us where to go, and authoritarian, Mm. which is very strong-handed form of autocratic rule. He doesn't necessarily, he he gives autocratic a little bit of negativity, Mm -hmm. but he's also like, hey, you're in a platoon, that's the platoon commander, it's it's autocratic. What he says, we're gonna do. That is the reality of the situation. Yeah. The the better reality is a democratic. 97% of the time, 3% of the time, autocratic. Yeah. 3% of the time, hey, I'm, I'm in charge. This is what we're going to make happen right now. We got to make this happen now. Boom. Yeah, isn't it like, because kind of, kind of you think, I remember, okay, you know how you have entrepreneurs and then mm. you have like employee types, right? Yes. And then you, like certain personalities go along with each one For like sure. way better, right? For where, sure. Because some people, let's face it, like they, just tell me where to be, what time, yep. and tell me what to do, man, yep. all, and they'll go hard and they'll go and they'll do it and they'll get it jo- get the job done super good, you know, within their little, the, within their job description, yep. scope, you know? And then some people, they go crazy with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they just rather like think and go out, color outside the lines and all this stuff, you know? So it's like, so the autocratic is kind of maybe for people who are yep. like that, right? But here's the thing. There's, everyone has a spectrum, right? And there's gonna be times where if you're working for me, Echo, there's gonna be times where you're like, dude, why is this guy bossing me around? And there'd be other times you'd be waiting for me to tell you what to do. Even you, as one human, can have, you can can transit across that spectrum. And what I'm saying is when there's a lot of pressure on and there's mayhem going on, most people are gonna want somebody to tell them what to do. I shouldn't say most, many, many people are going to say, dude, you need to tell me what to do right now because there's bad stuff going on. Remember in that scene in Saving Private Ryan right at the beginning, right? That crazy part. Yep. And then he kind of loses his hearing or something like mm-hmm. that. Then someone's like, he just kind of like snaps to and mm-hmm. this guy's in front of the stage saying, what do we do now, yep. sir? That's a classic <laughs> yeah, example. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Huh? That's a classic example of, hey, those guys are looking to be led yeah. at that moment. 
and it took a lot to get them to that point, but there they are. Yes, sir. So that's a good one. <clears throat> one of the obvious explanations for the failure of motivational aspects of leadership is in all these instances related to the advanced age of the individuals concerned. Old men are more cautious than young men and less able to make quick decisions than those whose arteries have not begun to harden. I've cut out a lot of the joke. This guy's a funny guy, I will say. There are are other more fundamental and pervasive reasons for these failures in leadership, which can be ascribed to the general psychopathology of military organizations. Their common denominator is anxiety. It is a feature of armed services that the penalty for error is very much more substantial than the reward for success. That is so important to remember for your organization. The penalty for error is way harder than the reward you get when you do something good. That's absolutely true in the military. So what kind of people do you end up with, right? Whereas the naval officer who, through an error of judgment on the part of his subordinates, puts his ship aground will almost certainly be court-martialed and stands a fair chance of being heavily punished. The reward for taking a bold action which pays off may be no more than a mention in a dispatch or some decoration with little or no effect upon promotional aspects. The net result of this bias towards negative reinforcement will be that fear of failure rather than hope of success tends to be the dominant motive force in decision making and the higher rank, the stronger this motive, there's farther to fall. This is a good thing to remember with your kids, right? With your kids, you don't want your kids operating out of fear of making a mistake. You want your kids operating on the hope of being successful. Finally, mention must be made of a thesis put forward by Simon Raven, which may bode ill for the future. It concerns the role of false premises in the training of officers, false premises that have their origin in a simple and obvious fact that an expectation of superiority in a leader by those who led will increase the tendency to follow him. This is this was kind of strange. Uh, for years, it was the case that since they were drawn from a socioeconomic class that was vastly inferior to that of the officers, the rank and file took for granted that their officers knew more than they did and were in a very real sense born to lead, i.e. were born into that class which traditionally the core of officers was drawn. That's the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. You kind of were a whatever, a peasant, and you had this lord that was your officer, and you're like, hey, dude, this dude's supposed to be in charge, so I'm kind of going to listen to him. Um, since the last war, that has cha- this has changed. Officers are no longer recruited exclusively from the upper classes. Comparatively, few are landed from gentry or ar- aristocratic families, and many have not even attended a public school, which a public school in England is a private school. <laughs> By the same token, the rank and file are better educated and more sophisticated than their forebears. So the troops are more educated. At first blush, this would seem all to the good, giving promise of a uh, democratization uh, in the profession of arms, a trend which would one day place it on par with most most other vocations in civilized society. Unfortunately, according to Smith Simon Raven's thesis, something quite other is happening. Confronted with the necessity of recruiting its officers from a section of society that would have been unthinkable in years gone by, the military has made it made what it regards as the best of a bad job by insisting that since officers must still be gentlemen, where no natural gulf exists between those who lead and those who follow, this must be artificially inculcated by training. So this is a little bit hard to follow, but I'm gonna just give a little detail here. So you used to have these people that were lords or whatever, (laughs) 
Sure. And so the troops were freaking peasants, and they're like, cool, this guy's a lord. I should probably be listening to him. He's a gentleman. He, he purports himself as a leader. Right. Cool. I'm going to tend to follow him. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, they started recruiting officers from wherever, and now they had to say, wait a second. They still need to be gentlemen, so we're going to inculcate this difference into them. We're going to make them into a higher class. Mm. What does inculcate? Uh, sort of put that seed into them. We're gonna we're gonna turn them into that. We're gonna plant this in them. As far as just an idea, or like really like or like okay, we're gonna inculcate these people. We're gonna train them to be that, or are we just gonna plant that seed in everyone's head so it seems like well, that? yeah. So what he says is artificially inculcated. Okay, okay, okay. So it. he's like, we're gonna yes. fake this. Yes, we're yes. gonna try and make these people seem as if right, right, right. they're of a higher class. Mm. Which is like that right there. We should already be thinking, uh oh. Right? Uh oh. The following excerpts from Raven's article should make the matter plain. We start with a glimpse of life at the Royal Military Academy and later at the School of Infantry at Warminster in the 1950s. According to Raven, the products of this training regimen may be as bizarre as those depicted in the four character studies which conclude this section. Here we go. Saluting at Sandhurst is tremendous. If you walk round Sandhurst looking remotely as if you might be an officer, you will receive an incessant barrage of compliments. <clears throat> the muddy boy in PT shorts will stop running, square his shoulders, and snap his eyes in your direction like knives. The elegant young gentleman in the brown trilby will lift it from his head with a controlled jerk to replace it in an exact number of seconds later at precisely the same angle. Boys in uniform with sticks, swords, rifles, or submachine guns will perform a volume of intricate movements alone or as a body, especially for your benefit. So they're trying to make people think they're, you know, elevated. To the detached observer, these quaint antics may seem ludicrous, boring, or even faintly embarrassing. However, there will be others so emotionally incapable of distinguishing between compliments paid to the abstractions of rank and commission and those paid to themselves as people that they will actually enjoy these gesticulations. Ooh, this is where the trouble starts, homie. <laughs> this is when you are going to, you know, you're going to OCS or wherever and you're getting trained and you start thinking you're damn right, you're saluting me. Mm-hmm. You, you are saluting me. But such enjoyment of these mandatory conventions based upon a highly motivated, if understandable, misinterpretation of their meaning may, like the effects of even the most transparent flattery, provoke wholly unrealistic feelings of self-importance. Oh. And you know what's kind of weird? It is kind of weird. In the military, one of the big distinctions you get called, is officers get called sir. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, so sir. think about that. Yeah. You, you're an officer, you get called sir. It doesn't matter if you're 21 years old and you just graduated from OCS or you just gradu- graduated from the academy. You're getting called sir. Yeah. So there's some people that go, man, you know what? It's really <laughs> awkward to be called sir when I'm actually 22 years old and this guy's 38 years old. That's mm-hmm. kind of weird, but I get it. It's the military convention. That, that's a great attitude to have. Yeah. And you know what? There is a level of respect even when a seasoned non-commissioned officer, a platoon chief, calls a, calls a young officer sir and he does it in a respectful way and there's a known, it, it doesn't need to be said. It's like, hey, I'm giving you your props. Right. It's good. Yeah, that's the way the rank structure works and it is like this just beautiful relationship. Yeah. 
Yeah, but, it feels but like. But then there's some people that go, yeah, you're damn right you call me sir. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, <clears throat> like, okay, like the seasoned guy calling mm-hmm. the new guy sir or whatever. Mm-hmm. If he's a officer, that's almost like it's respect for the whole institution. Right. Yes, 100%. Yeah. It's respect for the whole thing. And and a good young officer goes, man, man, mm. that's a little bit uncomfortable. But that's the kind of the deal here. I get it. And the and so there's also there's also enlisted guys that go through that phase of like, who the hell? Is I'm not calling this guy sir. Yeah, yeah. That's freaking ridiculous. Yeah. They'll call. I'll call you lieutenant. I'm not calling you sir. Sir's for my grandfather. So again, they go through that phase. Yeah. Young enlisted guys will go through that phase mm. of like, hey, I'm not calling this guy sir. Um, other significant features of the Sandhurst Melu, in, according to Raven R, the perfect system wherein cadets of higher rank are required to discipline and report upon those of lower status. The mind blunting drill square upon which three apparent essentials for a career of violence, unthinking obedience, an exquisite capacity for keeping in step, and a proper concern for the minutia of dress are instilled for hour upon hour until fatigue and sweat hang over the masked cadets like brimstone over Sodom. And finally, the total loss of privacy and lack of leisure for the following of idiosyncratic interests and pastimes taken together, the features of the Royal Military Academy are designed to, quote, build character and imbue future officers with values proper to their calling any gaps which sandhurst might leave in a total program for the inculcation of an officer-like quality are admirably filled up says raven by the quasi morale imperatives of war minister these cluster around the concepts of guts enthusiasm humor sociability and responsibility traits which every officer should show so they got done with sandhurst which is like their military college now they're their their advanced school this place, Warminster, and whatever they didn't get it, whatever didn't, whatever gaps there are, they're going to go even harder at, at Warminster. While much of the training was inevitably designed to promote physical fitness, there was nevertheless a strong-held belief that an officer, whether fit or not, should always have so much in the way of pride or guts that he would never admit to physical inadequacy until he dropped dead or unconscious. This belief, a very significant one, was both mythical was myth- mystical both in nature and intensity. Now, we're kind of chuckling about that. That's kind of a badass thing, though, right? Yeah. It's kind of a badass thing. Hey, th- you are not going to give up. Mm. You're not going to stand down. It doesn't matter if you're ready or not. You put on that rucksack, you're going to finish this damn march. That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. This was interesting. Another Warminster virtue was a peculiar brand of humor. This was not the ability to see oneself and see one's activities in a detached and ironical spirit. That would have been fatal. Humor meant being cheerful in the face of unpleasant circumstances, rallying the men's spirits by laughing with them over some slapstick incident, submitting like a good sport to an unjust punishment given to oneself by the adjutant, and laughing about it afterwards in the mess. This conception of humor, an obvious branch of guts, was in fact discreetly designed to counteract or totally extinguish any tendencies towards an objective or intellectual humor that might contain tinges of satire or cynicism, for such a thing would have been Detrimental to another highly prized virtue, that of enthusiasm. So this little brand of humor comes out where there's nothing directed with negativity up the chain of command. It's all just funny. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I think that's actually, again, maybe I'm just the brainwashed dude here, but I think that the guts part is cool. I think that the dark humor, twisted humor thing is kind of cool too because there's nothing better than getting 
getting in shitty situations and being able to laugh about it. Mm. I think that's cool. I guess maybe if you take it both these things to this far extreme where we're not protesting anything because we're just going to laugh at it or we're not going to ever stop because we're just going to keep going even if it's going to be harmful to us or our troops, then it turns bad, I guess. Mm. And he's got this word enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, I can hardly trust myself to speak. It seemed to mean a sort of blind, uncritical application to any task, however silly or futile, that the neurosis or panic of superior might have suddenly thrust upon us. Since one of the points of enthusiasm was that you started doing whatever it was straight away and without wasting time on question, enthusiasm could involve a frantic expense of time and energy on some trifling project, wastefully because uncritically undertaken, abandoned halfway as irrationally was it was as as it was commenced. This, of course, was just what great soldiers of the past wished to avoid when they deplored the indiscriminate use of zeal. Why zeal, condemned alike by Clausewitz and Wellington, should now once again be thought desirable. It is interesting to speculate. So this idea of enthusiasm, also known as zeal, is like, hey, I'm just on board for whatever you tell me to do. Mm. And I I guess that's another thing. Is it a beautiful thing in many cases? Yes, it is. But if you're getting told to charge the machine gun nest and you go roger that with enthusiasm and zeal and you get all your guys killed, that's not what we want. That shouldn't be what we want. Maybe in World War I, that's what we, quote, wanted. But we shouldn't want that. You should want pushback. Loyalty meant, there's another term, loyalty. Loyalty meant that you were required in the name of the queen and honor of the regiment to conceal any impatience or amusement you might feel when the demands of your enthusiasm became operatic, farcical, or just plain impossible of fulfillment. Loyalty, in fact, was a conception often blatantly used to blackmail you into silence when you were faced with incompetence, injustice, or sheer folly of a superior officer. That was kind of funny. This is just loyalty. Dude, where's your loyalty? Bro, he wants me to do this and doesn't make any sense. Bro, you need to be more loyal, right? <laughs> Sociability was also highly esteemed at Warminster. This, like loyalty, could mean many good things such as hospitality and the desire to please in social intercourse, but it also implied an unquestioning deference to the convenience and opinions of one's military superiors. So you're just gonna get on board with what everyone else is saying, and you can see what we're doing. We're creating robots, we're not creating thinking people, and this is bad. Mm-hmm. Courage under fire, a sort of distilled essence of guts, could not exactly be taught, so it had to be taken for granted, and all of us who were tacitly and grimly assumed to possess it, hence we can pass to a very much boosted commodity initiative. So we, well, now we finally go, oh, okay, cool, we want to see initiative. Unfortunately, in the peacetime conditions, even for the most part in wartime ones, communications are now so good that and the opportunities for genuinely individual action so rare that initiative tends to become a highly contrived thing artificially fostered to impress superiors. The sort of person who was praised at Warminster for initiative generally turned out to be a meddlesome bully of the type who reports to his best friend or to his housemaster for immoral behavior, thereby himself becoming head prefect in his friend's place. There you go. So, this section, he gives a bunch of examples of uh, various types of these officers and how they turned out. It seems, uh, fast forward a little bit, it seems that all remained of his training in the mind of each recipient was the faulty syllogism, officers should be gentlemen, I am an officer, therefore I am a gentleman. After this, 
he seemed to behave neither as an officer nor as a gentleman in generally any accepted sense of these terms. And Raven says this, once an officer is established in his own view as a member of a superior and order-giving classes class, he never loses this sense. This is where things turn into a nightmare, right? So an officer is established in his own view as a member of a superior and order-giving class. He never loses this sense, but he can and often does lose all awareness of the moral basis of this superiority and all the qualities which constitute this basis. So he forgets why he's in this position. He forgets that he was just like placed here. Mm. He starts to believe his own bullshit and the bullshit that's been fed to him, that people running around calling him sir and saluting him. He just becomes superior, as it were. In vacuo, which means in in a vacuum. He's in a vacuum. He's just superior. Mm -mm. He becomes a gentleman. When this happens, one gets that product so typical of the British, the amateur English officer, highly trained professionally and morally, he has forgotten his 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 professional techniques and sloughed off on his sense of moral obligation, but he retained an unassailable sense of his own superiority and absolute right to give orders. And my note next to that was nightmare. That's a nightmare. Mm. To forget how you ended up in this position, to forget that you don't know everything, to just get told that you're an officer and you're superior, and you start to believe that this is a nightmare for leadership. Nowadays, things are different. The social distance between officers and men more often than not contrived rather than rooted in their ancestry. For officers of humble origins, this might well be expected to produce sizable problems of adjustment. The first jolt to their social reinforcement standard will be of one of descriptive discrepancy. What's interesting about this is there's no guarantee. Like I knew officers that came silver spoon all day long and they were just down to earth good people. And I also knew Silver Spoon officers that thought that they deserved, they thought that they were superior. I also knew some guys from lower class that scrambled through and scraped through and became officers, and they were awesome, and they never forgot where they came from. And I also knew officers that had come up through the ranks, and they were turds. (laughs) Leif points out that the best officer that went through his junior officer training was a prior enlisted officer, and the worst officer that went through his, <laughs> through his junior officer training was a prior enlisted officer, which is crazy to think. Yeah, that's I, cra- crazy to think. I think that I agree with that. Your your description, those four categories, whatever you want to call them, mm. same thing, seeing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember the way you were describing it. Is I I remember, I guess I don't remember like the first time it happened, but <clears throat> there's like a ceremony. Do, do you do you have a first salute yep. ceremony? Yep. Um, and I remember that being an incredibly uncomfortable experience for mm-hmm. me. Like, man, this is weird. The <laughs> guy who I did it was a good friend of mine. He was an enlisted Marine. He had fought in Desert Storm. He was a a, a known, well well known guy. And just by virtue of of um, accomplishing the criteria to make me an officer, like from one moment to the next, mm-hmm. he saluted me. Yeah. And I think I was just lucky to have that sense of like, man, this is weird. 
you know, <laughs> but also I think you described it well, like the reverence for the institution, like this is how the institution is designed. And if you have that reverence for it, he didn't feel demeaned and I didn't feel superior. Mm-hmm. And yet that's the way it's supposed to be. And yeah. And yet how easily like, Oh, <laughs> I could get used to this. God. You know how quickly people fall into that trap they of fall into that trap. All and day it's long. not the, and it's not the institution that bestowed this on me. Mm. Yeah. I deserve, I this. deserve. Yes. This. Yeah, I mean, and this, again, we're talking about the military specifically, but you can apply this anywhere. You can apply this anywhere. Oh, well, I you know, I went to this college. I went through this program. I got my MBA from here or there. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, did I tell you that? Did, did, I, did I mention where I went to college? You know, it's like, mm, yeah, that's cool, man. Appreciate it. That's awesome. Yeah, but when you say it, nobody notices it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's oh, a man. there's a, a note about this Ravens assessment. So somebody kind of read that big assessment of Sandhurst, and and this guy says, I read Simon Ravens' paper with great interest. When you when you ask for my comments, you must bear in mind that in 1898, when I was gazetted, I joined a totally different type of army from that of today. It was an aristocratic army, feudal in the sense that it was grounded on leadership and and fellowship in which, with few exceptions, the leaders were the sons of gentlemen and more frequently than not, the eldest sons, the most privileged sons. When I went to Sandhurst, we were not taught to behave like gentlemen because it never occurred to anyone that we should behave otherwise. We were taught a lot of obsolete tactics in every army of that day, did a tremendous lot of useless drill, but never heard a word about responsibility, loyalty, guts, etc. because, so I suppose, these were held to be the natural prerequisites of gentlemen. So this is back in the day when it's like, hey man, you better act like this, you're upholding the family name. The men, the followers of that period were a rough lot, simple, tough, illiterate. Largely recruited from down and outs, men who had a lot, men who men who had gotten a lot of trouble, vagabonds, and a sprinkling of the gra- sons and grandsons, sons of NCOs and private soldiers, military families who generally became NCOs. There were therefore two distinct classes, really castes by birth. On the whole, the men looked up to their officers, whether they were efficient or insufficient or inefficient, and the officers did not look down on their men. Why should they? So he was saying like, this was just kind of the way it was back then. The idea of an officer imposing on his, imposing his will on his men never entered his head because one class was so superior and the other so inferior that it was unnecessary to do this. There wasn't even any opposing ideas to what you were saying. The superior could not lose caste should he play or mix with his men. I remember, This is a good story. I remember on my first tour as an orderly officer on the QMS, was late for, the QMS, meaning the quartermaster, so one of the sailors was late for meat issue. And I thought he had risked it because I was a novice. So I put him under arrest. When this was reported to the adjutant, he took me aside and said, strictly speaking, you were right, but actually speaking, you were an ass, so don't do it again. And I didn't. So he like punished this guy trying to prove that he was pretty. He said, hey, bro, what are you doing? You, you technically, you could do that, but that's not the way you treat your people. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> of the present day Democratic Army, I know next to nothing. 
like the old aristocratic one, it must have its good points and is probably more efficient, but to me, it is a folly to try and mix the two. A gentleman is born and not made. It is probably true that it takes three generations to fashion one, and so it would appear from Mr. Raven's experiences if you try and make them synthetically, you get neither an aristocrat or a democracy. One sees this everywhere today, among the rich, the poor, on the roads, in, and in the factories. I repeat it again, gentlemen are not turned out like sausages. They are, turn, they are men of ingrained honor, of principle, and of decent behavior, and some of the finest I have met in my long life have belonged to the humblest classes. Because this caste, rather than class, is becoming extinct, in my humble opinion, one of the great factors at the bottom of the present world turmoil. And that's from uh, JFC Fuller. And he's another guy that was sort of in league with um, Liddell Hart, lots of great ideas, uh, fought in North Africa, fought in World War One, or sorry, in South Africa, fought in World War One. The Nazis took a bunch of his ideas and ran with them, by the way, even though he's a Brit. So it's just a different, I, I, I wanted to read that part because it's just a different world. It's just a different situation. And they sort of had this pre-existing system that was in place. Now, what kind of makes me disturbed about this is, you know, he's he's basically talking about how great the gentlemen were of the day, but these were the gentlemen that freaking acted like idiots leading their troops to be killed. So there wasn't so much uh, honor and principle as he's talking about. Uh, Closing out this section, He says, from a general study of leadership, it seems there is much in military organizations to invite incompetence. Officers are selected for the wrong reasons, required to fulfill incompatible roles, and expected to function adequately in a communication system of dubious efficiency. At higher levels of command, they are protected from adverse criticism by their invisibility and by the plain fact that in times of stress, even the poorest leaders like drunken fathers and rabbit's feet are clung to with pathetic if misplaced dependency. <clears throat> yeah, the invisibility part, he mentioned that and was talking about the fact that uh, a lot of these senior leaders, they just, no one would see them. You wouldn't see them on the front lines. So they weren't getting any criticism because they, were, they weren't around to be criticized. Mm. Military achievement besides providing legitimate outlets for aggression the gratification of obsessive tendencies and reassurances about virility Armies and navies also cater for another basic human motive the need to achieve They do this in several ways they embody related hierarchies of rank money and class So there's another thing that you can get by joining the military if you're a person that's driven to succeed You can go in the military and you can get like a a formatted way to move up the chain of command. Second, they accentuate the challenge of promotional ladder by making certain upward movements very difficult indeed. Third, the ethos of the armed forces is such that such as to make advancement laudable and highly rewarding. Generals have every advantage, bar that of age, over those lower down on the ladder. They are richer, safer, and more comfortable. Their chances of collecting honors, orders, and knighthoods are imminently greater than those of more junior ranks. Finally, even the most modest thirst for achievement is encouraged by training and convention. The taboo on juniors speaking to senior seniors in officer training establishments, saluting and being saluted, orders of march, rules as to say, as who says sir to whom, all serve to emphasize the horizontal stratifications of military organizations 
besides adding luster to each new level gained. So that's what the military sets up. This really nice place where you can kind of, you see what the game is, and if you know how to play the game, you're gonna get, you're gonna get satisfaction. Unfortunately, there are aspects of military career which are unlikely to attract people with high achievement motivation. And he says this, at first sight, these arguments would seem to suggest that the possibility of promotion in a military organization would attract those with a potential for achievement, go-getters, entrepreneurs, innovators, and men with energy and drive. In short, people who would make first-class military commanders, right? So you think, oh, cool, this is like a hierarchy setup. That makes sense. I'm down. I want to go in there because I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a go-getter. Sometimes it does. In the case of Wellington, Montgomery, Rommel, and Zukov, men with inordinately strong needs for achievement. All those guys wanted to do well. Unfortunately, however, there are aspects of a military career which are unlikely to attract people with high achievement motivation. The fact that traditionally promotion depends upon seniority, class, wealth, conformity, and obedience may well leave them rather cold. Neither means nor the ends are sufficiently attractive. So when you get a guy like Wellington, like Rommel, they look and say, okay, how do I need to get promoted? Oh, I've got to conform. I've got to be a yes man. So all their entrepreneurial spirit is thrown out the window. They don't, they, they, they're being forced to comply in order to get promoted. So it doesn't really seem as attractive as they thought it originally was going to be. Moreover, military types, military has never smiled upon entrepreneurs and innovators, the cut and thrust of private enterprise, cleverness, and even working too hard have not been deemed good form. There is, however, another class of person for whom the military might well be an attractive proposition. These are people who achievement motivation is pathological in origin. The crucial difference between the two sorts of achievement, the healthy and the pathological, may be summarized by saying that whereas the first is buoyed up by hopes of success, the second is driven by fear of failure. So you got one person that wants to do a good job, and one's person that's just scared to fail. Whereas the former achieves out of a quest of excellence in his job, the latter achieves by any means available, not necessarily because of any sincere devotion to the work, but because of the status, social promotion, or social approval, and reduction of doubts about the self that such achievement brings. Applying these distinctions to the military, it would seem that senior commanders fall into two groups. And I think this is actually pretty accurate. Those primarily concerned with improving their professional ability and those primarily concerned with self-betterment. <laughs> oh, fast forward a little bit. Research suggests that these two sorts of achievement motivation go along with certain other personality traits. Thus, need achievement, motivation towards professional excellence is accompanied by greater occupational and intellectual competence. So this is a person that's wanting to get promoted for the right reasons. Greater occupational and intellectual competence. That's what he wants. A better memory for uncompleted tasks and therefore a predisposition to finish something once it's begun. A preference when choosing working partners for successful strangers rather than unsuccessful friends. That's one interesting. You crappy leaders always surround themselves with their crappy unsuccessful friends. A greater readiness to volunteer for psychological experiments, greater activity in the institution or community of which they are a member. So this is, I I think it's just important to remember that there's some people that are out there for themselves. And there's some people that are out there to try and do a good job. He says, compare Lawrence, and this is Lawrence of Arabia. Compare Lawrence roughing it with his tiny Arab force on the 800-mile trek across the desert to to, to rest 
Aqaba from the Turks. With Townsend comfortably ensconced in his villa on the Sea of Marmara while his captured troops died in their thousands from exposure, malnutrition, and brutality. The contrast in both cases is between the self-imposed asceticism of high achievement motivation and the self-indulgence of one concerned with professional excellence, less concerned with professional excellence than with personal advantage. Pretty good stark difference between those two. How is it that some of the criteria for promotion to military organizations are evidently such as to favor people with a pathological degree of achievement motivation? This is scary. The person that might have a tendency to get promoted is the one that's looking out for themselves in some cases in the military. Again, it's important to say this isn't like the entire military, but certainly, I certainly saw people in the military that were 100% looking out for themselves and they got promoted. Yeah. That does happen. Yep. There's no doubt about it. It it happens less than you would think. A lot of times that transparency that these idiots would have looking out for themselves and trying to make those maneuvers, everyone would see it and they'd be like, no, you're not getting promoted. But it did happen. There are grounds for thinking that incompetent commanders tend to be those whom the need to avoid failure exceeds the urge to succeed. According to J.W. Atkinson and N.T. Feather, such people tend to eschew activities which they may show up in a poor light and unless forced to do so, refrain from taking on any skilled task where there are any doubts about the outcome. So people that are just concerned about themselves, they'll only go into jobs where they know they're gonna win. That's what they're trying to do. They're just they're they're only doing jobs of things that they know they're going to do, they know that they're going to win at. Herein lies a special dilemma. Though they need to achieve, it is the very nature of trying which exposes them to that which they fear most: failure. They are like people who try to climb mountains, out of an underlying fear of heights. It would not be surprising to find that such people are attracted to and prosper in the armed services. For if one plays it carefully in the military, in contrast to the world of commerce, offers achievement without tears, stick to the rule book, do nothing without explicit approval from the next higher up, always conform, never offend your superiors, and you will float serenely if a trifle slowly upward, a blimp in both senses of the word. That's the reality. You can't, you, there, there, you can't do that. You can join the military and you can just kind of keep your nose clean, stay low profile, don't take any additional risks, conform, and you will get promoted over time. In many cases. Marine Corps is tighter though, I think. <laughs> I'd like to think that. I mean, you're descri- what you're describing, I can, I'm, he's right. Yeah. And I've seen it. And not, not right in a blanket statement. No, 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 no. But it certainly happens. Yes. Yeah. He, yeah. yeah no, correct. And, and you're right in saying like, that's part of the system is, is you have you might show up with this altruism of how it works and the wrong people get promoted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not a lot of those people. It's actually a small number, like you said, but it happens enough that you will see it. You're not going to go a career and go, oh, I never saw that. Every single time it was the right person and the right reasons. No, throughout my career, there was examples that I can reflect back on. It's a small number, but the system doesn't work perfectly. And I think the thing I was thinking about, and this is military, I think in general, there are enough jobs in the military that have been done enough times that the template is there that you can go, I can take those set of orders and like, man, 
it's really low risk. Yep. You know, I'm cookie gonna, cutter. Cookie cutter job that's been done. I need to take the template. Jocko's gonna hand it off to me. Here's the, you know, here's the script. Follow the script. Low profile, um, low risk. You're gonna look good in the end, and you're gonna get promoted. There, there are those jobs out there. Um, I was lucky in my career to have jobs that either had never been done before, or really there wasn't a lot of history behind them. So. You know, I'm remembering a couple times like when I was in command of an organization where, you know, I was being told, hey, um, hey if this fails, it's going to destroy the whole thing. I'm like, oh, that's uh, okay. okay. <laughs> that's awesome. I think I've told this story before. I'm, I'm far enough away from it now that I can, I can tell it if I haven't before. But when I took over the first F-35 squadron, uh, the Marine Corps' F-35 program was on probation. Like they were contemplating canceling the F-35 for the Marine Corps, the B variant, which was the Marine Corps variant. And the Marine Corps had already long since committed to that was the only platform. There was no plan B. There was no alternative to that. So if we were going to lose the F-35B, the Marine Corps was going to lose TAC air. Jeez. And um, as soon as I took command and, you know, I, I stood up. I told you there's a guy there before no airplanes. But when I took command, the airplane started to arrive right when I got there. The commandant of the Marine Corps came down. Um, spent like an hour with me. They met him at the squadron. It was he and his sergeant major and me and my sergeant major. And he goes, hey, I hate to tell you this, but you can't crash an airplane. Oh. Like, wow, that's... <laughs> oh. Roger that. Roger that. You know what I mean? Like, if you crash an airplane, we're going to lose the program. Marine Corps going to lose that care. And so you're talking about the, the balance of the risk of losing is a lot, you know, the balance that between the benefit of winning. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'll just, you know, marginal benefit of winning but like there's zero risk yep. or you know the flip side is hey if i go two years as a squadron commander everything goes great i'm gonna get a firm handshake and a congratulations and life's gonna go on mm-hmm. but nobody's gonna credit me for doing anything remarkable because the system is the the, the program is just moving along where, where it needs to go but if i screwed up you know that downside risk and and i understand the the aversion to that like mm-hmm. hey what'd you rather have a guaranteed win with you know a guaranteed marginal win with no chance of losing or High risk of failure, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that we need the right person at the right time to, to go through that. A lot of people are averse to that. Yep. Well, and this is the other scary thing about that is, <clears throat> so you're the squadron commander. You get told, don't crash any birds. Well, how about we fly a little less? Yes. And right? it's, it's interesting you said that because in the exact <laughs> same weekend, the deputy commandant for aviation, the head aviator in the Marine Corps, said your number one job is to fly as much as humanly possible. Dang. Roger that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, there's a part of it too that you have to understand this. Like, there is nothing that I could do personally short of shutting down the squadron to guarantee they don't care. There's nothing I can do that. So there's a part of that. Like, if you can just let that go, Mm -hmm. just recognize my best chance of me being successful is to micromanage none of this as opposed to try to micromanage all of it. And and, and that's such a good point because, okay, we can either fly as little as humanly possible, which means everyone's paranoid. No one really knows how to do their job. We're like, all right, we're going to fly these things. We're going to be awesome at it. And that's the right call. Obviously, not everyone would make that decision. No. And even then, there's still even the right call doesn't guarantee the outcome. Mm-hmm. You can oh, yeah, do yeah. everything right, yeah, yeah. and you know what? Yeah, you have a mishap on those Plane, aircraft. Yes, yeah, things yeah. break. Yeah, things break in mid-flight. Yep, that happens. They do, especially brand new airplanes that are yeah. still being designed while you're flying them. Those things happen. <laughs> How many F-35s have crashed? Not a lot. So. <laughs> I believe uh, I have to go back and look. I think the first one crashed in my squadron like six months after I left. Um, yeah, got out of it. 
Um, <laughs> we've there's been a very small. It's been a very safe airplane. What does an F thirty five cost? At the time, it was one hundred and thirty million. Now it's probably ninety. Oh, so they cut the price down a little bit. Well, those first ones are like you know yeah. they were literally the <clears> very <throat> first ones off the assembly line. So that that as you know, like that mass production benefit hadn't right. kicked in yet. So H one was kind of like a unique article. Now, like they're jamming them out, they're making a bunch of them, and, and it's it's more cost effective. I know these are crazy numbers, but at mm. the time they were they were expensive. One hundred and thirty three a copy. I had fourteen. If you when you fly an F thirty five and you're doing a vertical, how how often did you a vertical takeoff? Uh, like a short takeoff, like the Stovall, like the yeah, like yeah, we, like a Harrier. Yeah, tor- not that often. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. It's, How much gas do you go through taking one of those things off vertically? The, the vertical flying burns a ridiculous amount of gas. Do you just basically have to refuel as soon as you get up? It's not that bad, but <laughs> it's it's a lot of gas. Yeah. The if, the landings are more of a critical because you're on the clock. Like you come in, you got to be relatively light. You can't land uh, like a fully loaded airplane vertically because it's too heavy. Oh, okay. So you got to be like at a certain limited amount of gas so the plane is light enough to hover. But then again, like you can't just you know sit there all day long because you don't have that much gas. It's nothing like the Harrier was. Those guys, it was sketchy, like really, really sketchy. But um, yeah, you're burning a lot of gas, a lot. Of it gas. was sketchy in a Harrier. What made it more sketchy? Um, less powerful airplane, harder to fly, less margin for error. Less. You needed less gas to be able to land and didn't have as much time. You know, just. I flew technology. the I flew the uh, Harrier simulator out at Yuma. Dude, I crashed that thing literally 17 times in a row. I've, my total flight time was nine seconds or yeah. something. I just, wow. If you got wow. into an F-35 right now in the simulator, I could over the shoulder walk you through it and you land it almost perfectly in the first mm. try. Well, that's like drones. Man, those first drones came out that were like little model airplanes. <laughs> Guys were just crashing them everywhere. And now a three-year-old can fly a drone. And that's that's no exaggeration. So yeah. Technology. Uh, this thing says, on the same note, the net result would be a bimodal distribution of officers at every grade. So these two different types of officers, you end up with them at every grade. Those who take risks and get away with it, the Montgomery's and Lawrence's of this of this world, and those who have plotted up the hard but safe way, the good old boys who never speak out of turn, who make up intact and conformity what they lack in enterprise and initiative. <clears throat> Interesting. Contemplation of inept commander suggests that they were of the latter genre. In the first place, they were renowned almost without exception for being hypersensitive to criticism. So those people that are the, the, the conformists, <clears throat> hypersensitive. As to the question of physical bravery, in no way detracts from the feats of courage to note that the fear of being afraid, the fear of social disapproval for cowardice, and most important, the personal shame attendant upon flinching in the face of danger could drive a man to perform acts of valor far beyond the normal call of duty. This is not to deny that bravery occurs for other reasons, out of pure altruism or patriotism, but merely that some individuals are so lacking in self-esteem that they will gladly exchange the fear of failure for their own physical destruction. That's kind of a weird thing to say. In a very real sense, military organizations recognize and trade upon this fact of human nature. Death rather than dishonor is no empty platitude, but formulates an essential and ancient feature of military grid. I'll tell you what's, I think that's a weird thing to say, but I think what, if he would expand a little bit more, which he doesn't, what's scary about that is when people are being brave 
with other people's lives. Yeah. That that's what's jacked up. Look, if you're brave and you go and do something heroic, good on you. I don't care what your motivation was. I think Sam Harris always talks about the fact that you can't you can't fake bravery, right? You run out in the street, there's no faking it. You did it. Right. And that's that. It doesn't matter if you thought you were did it because you were going to be uh, ashamed or you did it because you were just hyper motivated or whatever it doesn't matter you can't fake it you were brave no 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 question about it but when you start being brave with other people's lives that's a freaking disaster and that's what these horrible leaders end up doing it cannot be emphasized too strongly that this suggested relationship between valor and the need to prove oneself in no way debases bravery on the contrary it takes the view that the best measure of courage is the fear that is overcome then these were the bravest of them all for it was only by conquering rational fear that they could nullify fear of being afraid so there you go the tragedy of this issue is that if military organizations select their senior commanders for their physical as opposed to moral bravery they not only might ignore other equally important attributes but are bound to select a proportion of individuals whose underlying psychopathology is quite unfitted to positions of high command in this way they invite incompetence so just because someone's brave doesn't mean you want to put them in a leadership position doesn't say you don't want them there and there is certainly a huge benefit to someone that's been in combat and knows what's happening knows the understands the emotions and and the, the human nature that takes place on the front lines, for sure, that's highly beneficial. Shouldn't be the only reason you select somebody, though. Um, the last trait of those who harbor a fear of failure concerns the selection of subordinates. There are really two components to this process. The first concerns the way an individual sees himself in comparison with his competitors, and the second, the way he thinks others will see him in comparison with his contemporaries. In either case, he may, way try, he may well try to elevate his own self-estimation by choosing a low standard with which to make comparison. Hence the phenomenon of people who tend to shun the company of individuals more gifted and even choose workmates as select or select as subordinates people whom they consider inferior to themselves. What a freaking disaster that is. So that's the person that wants to look good, so hires a bunch of idiots. He talks a little bit about Haig. He talks about Haig being painfully aware of his limitations. Haig was a World War One commander of British troops. And then uh tried to enter the one profession open to the dunce of the family, the army, only to find that even there he failed to shine. He got put in his position. The reason he got promoted is because he got sort of a, a, a hookup from a family member. His elder sister, Henrietta, knew the Duke of Cambridge, hooked him up with his entry, entry into staff college. Then he was the aide-de-camp to the king. Dude, this guy's just making moves, making moves became respected for his conventional opinions. That's crazy, right? You're, you become respected because you agree with everybody. That's a great point, King. That's a 100% right, King. <laughs> uh, he said things like, cavalry will have a larger sphere of action in future wars. Artillery only seems to be really effective against raw troops. These are just idiotic yeah, statements. I wonder what he thought of the tank. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he also had a he was also t- uh, prone to a steady denigration of his competitors and the removal of his superior ca- <laughs> of co- superior commanders. This guy was just a shit talker, Haig. Haig's talent for finding fault with everybody but himself was particularly keen. 
whenever results had resulted in military setback. And he gives all these just crazy examples. Uh, he put he blamed someone. He's unfit to command a division at this critical period of the operations in France and should only be employed at home. By the way, there's people that are working for him, by the way. Ralston is unsatisfactory loyalty to his subordinates, but he has many other valuable qualities. He's trying to get rid of somebody. He's like, oh, he's, he's has valuable qualities, but he's overly loyalty to his troops. It seems impossible to discuss the military problems with and with an unreasoning brain of his kind. The fact is that Sir John seems incapable of realizing the nature of the fighting that has been going on and the difficulties of getting fresh troops and stores forward in adequate communication trenches. Doug, on Saturday, October 9th, he made an impromptu report to, oh, this is uh, on Saturday, October 4th, 9th, Haig, this guy makes this report up his chain of command about the his commander, Sir John French. What happens eventually? French gets fired. Who gets put in charge? Haig. Hey, God his wish, reaching the pinnacle of the greatest army that the empire had ever put in the field in the past or was ever to amass in the future, a body whose heroism and devotion was such that they could twice in two successive years be ravaged in hopeless offensive who were in a single day to lose more men than any other army in the history of the world whom after 27 months of slaughter and exhaustion he was to leave so perilously exposed that they were nearly annihilated. Just horrible. And this uh, section that we'll close out with for today says, freedom of expression and cognitive process unfettered by inhibitions were not looked upon with favor in military personnel. So that's a horrible situation. It seems then that in the case of achievement motivation, as with obsessive tendency, military organizations attract and then reinforce those very characteristics which will prove antithetical to competent military performance. It's a, again, is that true in the military? Yes, it is. Is it true in the civilian, or let me rephrase that. I saw your look on your face, Dave. Can it be true in the military? Yes, it can. Can it attract people with these type of tendencies? Yes, it can. Can it then provide opportunities for people to sort of just get on board with the system? Yes, it can. Does the civilian sector do that as well? Hell yes, it does. Happens in any leadership situation where we take these things that we should be striving for, like freedom of expression and unfettered cognitive processes, meaning you should just be able to think, and we crush them. And, and you know, I was thinking this. Uh, we've been talking about the 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 EO leadership loop, and included in that is the is the OODA loop, right? These ideas of constantly running through your mind, all these different aspects of leadership. And the main list lesson that you and I are putting out. This is what we just put out at the muster. The main lesson when you're running these loops is not to get stuck. Is not to get stuck is to free your mind and that's how I close out the last podcast I said free your mind 
and I want to reiterate that you have to keep your mind open if your mind's always stuck if and it can be stuck by so many different things it can be stuck by your ego your insecurities it can be stuck by your fear it can be stuck by tradition it can be stuck by custom it can be stuck by the restraints of the institution that you're in if your mind is getting stuck like that you have to be weary you have to be afraid of that because if you let your mind get stuck in that fixed position you're going to get flanked you're going to get overrun and you're going to get destroyed and if you're in a leadership position that is what's going to happen not just to you but to your troops so keep an open mind echo charles yes sir what do you got the, that whole that part about like not taking risks uh, fear of failure like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff like for whatever reason it, it was making me think of like the jujitsu journey uh-huh. ascending with like getting belts and mm-hmm. all this stuff so in the beginning I mean, yeah sure a little of mine specific but you can kind of see it where you know if you're focused on the belt yeah you you tend to be more like fear of failure kind of approach to training and and but if you're just like, hey, I'm in here to get better and learn and be humble, take risks, see what happens, all this stuff, compete, and st- you know, and the higher you get, the better you'll become. Yeah. But if you start, let's say, you get like, I don't know, purple belt. I feel like is one of the the benchmark belts, mm, right? Where for you sure. Kind of become. That's like jujitsu puberty, right mm. there. You know. So a lot of people, and it can vary from belt to belt for sure, but sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, I don't want to look bad as a purple belt, yeah, so I'm going to take good. less risk. I'm going to only train with guys who I know that I won't you know, do poorly against yeah. or whatever, you know, and you can kind of fall into that trap. But then you get people who they don't, they don't think about that kind of stuff. It's so like the belt, that's just a byproduct of, of my journey, and yeah. I don't even think about that. Those are the guys that, that just keep getting better and better. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought you were actually going to bring up just like the entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, we work with a lot of companies at Echelon Front, and the leaders that have taken risk and have broken outside the norm, those are the leaders that they end up doing exceptionally well, right? If they manage it well. Like, look, you can take big risks and you can fail, right? That happens. Mm. That's why they're called risks. But if you want to, look, can you play it safe? Yeah, yes, you can. And you can do that in the corporate world. Hey, you can, you can follow the rules and you can, do, you, can, and you can move up the chain. And that's fine. That's fine. If you want to excel, you're going to have to take some chances. You're going to have to take some risks. That's what you're going to have to do. And, and, and then you do, if you do utilize sort of the, the standard sort of conformity to move up the chain. What I will be, I, okay, I get it, but you know what? Don't suppress. Don't suppress risk from others. Don't 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 suppress entrepreneurial thinking from other people inside your organization. That's where I think we run into a real problem. You know, I kind of followed the rules and conformed, and I got my promotion, and then Dave comes along. And he's a little bit more of a risk taker, a little bit more entrepreneurial. And this could be in the military. This could be in the business sector. And what do I do? I outrank him. I shut him down. Yeah. I partially shut him down because I don't want him. I don't want him to out outmaneuver me. So I'm just going to shut down on all, all of his ideas. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm also going to shut him down because I don't want to take any risk. So if you wanna if you wanna play that game for yourself and you don't want to take a bunch of risks and you just want to have a safe, comfortable job, that's okay. That's not bad. 
Look, if you work hard and 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 you do a good job inside your business organization, that's great. I, I actually like that. I appreciate it. But the minute you you have that attitude and you start to impose it on people around you, you need to check yourself. You need to check yourself because you're shutting down minds, you're closing minds, and you're really, in the long term, hurting your organization. Yeah. You ever come across a situation, it feels like it feels like it's real common, where you get two people, they go into business together. Mm-hmm. One guy's risk averse, one guy's like freaking try yep. anything, and they sort of start to balance each other out. For sure. And not to mention there's some jobs that are kind of more conducive for yeah. certain attitude the, types, yeah. right? The risky guys like out t- doing the sales pitch and the yeah, other yeah. guys back and Accounting. balancing the books. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it is good to have business partners like that, for sure. Yeah, kind of reel you in when you need it, as long as they're not overbearing, I guess, right? There you, you go. Freaking. There you go. All right. Well, we're trying to keep our minds open. Yeah. We're trying to improve ourselves mentally, physically, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Echo, you got any suggestions? Yeah, we do. I do. We do. We all do, actually. And we know. You want to go? No, I just want to make sure we're recording. Oh, <laughs> Jack. <laughs> <laughs> That was good. Thanks, Dave, by the way. So what do you got, Echo What do you got for us? Uh, well, you know, we're all working out, doing jujitsu, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully. We should be. I'm just saying, you know, it's one of those things. It does keep you on the path. Uh, we're reading mental, physical, everything, right? We want to lead by example. I'll tell you that. We want to make good decisions. I'll mm-hmm. tell you that. So, all right, we're on this path. We're on this path. Good decisions, physical capability. Mental capability, we'll say. In a nutshell, it's what it is. Yes. And improvement. Yes. We want to take risks, but not too many risks. Check. We want to take risks, but not too big of risks. Okay. Concur. Yeah. So one thing you don't want to risk is your health. I'll tell you that right now. It's a bad thing to risk. When did you write that little setup right there? I, I just came up with <laughs> yeah, it just Look now. at you, dude. <laughs> Speaking of mental acuity, look at you. Look at that guy. I Well, anyway. You said all that stuff just to say we don't take too many risks. With our health, there you go. It's Look true. At that, tying it it's in. It's true. If you don't have your it health, all together, man, I'm just saying it's, it's freaking impressive. It's not the thing to take risks with. Hell yeah! Anyway. Hell yeah! <laughs> Thanks for the support, Jocko. Um, okay, so we got energy drinks. That was mine. We got energy drinks, not old school energy drinks that do risk your health. We have energy drinks that don't risk your health. That actually improve your health. Improve your health. No risk. Upside across the board. Across the board. No gambling here. Upside across the board. Yes, sir. Right. If I was to say, hey, this thing over here can make you feel good. Yeah. And you were like, okay, cool. And it, it not only can it make you feel good, it can actually make you be more healthy. Yep. Would, what Perform. would you say to that? I'd say cool. That's, you'd say cool. What if I had something else over here? And I was like, this will also make you feel good. For a little bit. And you said, okay, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. But then I said, after that, you're going to be addicted to it and you're going to end up becoming a crystal methamphetamine addict <laughs> and dying. Yes, that would be bad. That's downside. Yes, sir. That's downside. So we like the little, mm, we like that little hype that we got yeah. from the crystal meth that you, that I gave you. Sure. But yeah. then the downside is like a disaster. Your teeth are falling out. You lost your job. There's all kinds of problems in the future. That is true. Yes. So I'm not going to sell you that. No. I'm not going to want you to take that. You're not going to recommend that. You're no. correct. But I've got something else over here. Yes, sir. It's going to give you that hype. Yes. With zero downside. All hype, zero downside, and this is. I will not find you at a, you know, a meth lab licking the floor. No. Which is what I'm afraid of oh, if yes. I give you the other thing. 
that is an <laughs> undesirable outcome. Yes, sir. So, yes. Yeah, so when you're choosing an energy drink, you're looking for energy drink, even if you're not even into energy drinks necessarily. And I understand if you're not, because really, how could you be when you consider those? Yes. Drinks? Yes. Now we got a solution for that. Yeah. Straight up. All healthy energy drink. Completely good for you. Jocko Discipline. Go. Yeah. By Jocko. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh, tastes good, too. Different flavors. So far, the apparently, on paper, the more popular one is orange. Afterburner orange. Afterburner orange. Dave Burr. Good deal, Dave's signature flavor. On paper, it's good. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't know, if you're not in the know, you go, you... You, you have an awesome selection. You know you know that the orange is going to come through. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. But you want to take a little bit more risk, right? Uh, maybe maybe a higher upside. <laughs> maybe. Bringing the thread to the whole freaking thing. <laughs> hey, look, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just a person. Uh, but, hey, maybe, though, you take a little bit more risk on a more exotic flavor like mango. Mango passion fruit, to be specific. <laughs> you might wind up with that bigger upside. I don't know. That's up to you. But according n- to nonetheless, there are many different flavors. You choose whichever one. All of them are all upside, no downside. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter technically at the end of the day what flavor you choose. That's for mm-hmm. your own personal choice. Mm-hmm. So get some of that yep. discipline go. We also got joint warfare, krill oil. We got the discipline powders. We got some new, um, what, what do you call them? Hype. I, well, they're not technically called hype. I think they're called pre-workout mm-hmm. uh, mixes, powders. Yeah. Of sorts. So, so we've had the discipline powder for a while, just called discipline, mm-hmm. and it didn't have much caffeine in it, to be real specific. Yeah. And people were like, hey, that's cool. We appreciate it. Yeah. <clears throat> but sometimes we want more of a kick. So we didn't go nuts. We didn't go 700 milligrams of caffeine. Yeah. Do you know the, n- the numbers? 95. 95 per scoop. Oh, okay. Okay, per scoop. Okay, so that's that's more moderate, I would say. Oh, it, than, yeah, it's moderate, unless yeah. you have two scoops or three scoops. Right, which is which is good. Because, okay, the, the classic pre-workout, um, if you go two scoops, that's too much already. Mm-hmm. It's it's too much. Yeah. But at the same time, if you, if you don't want to get all nuts with it, you got to start meticulously putting only a little bit of power. You can't really bet, you know, so I dig it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. Put, if you need 300 milligrams of caffeine before one workout, if that's what you need, I'm not, I'm not, hey, dig it, man. I dig it. But you could just have three scoops. Easy money. Yeah, I would say back off a little bit. That's my personal Generally opinion. speaking, but here's the thing. Eat. Also, do some abstinence days, right? Yeah, yeah. Some, like some on discipline. the weekend, you know, whatever. On month, whatever. Some days be like, yeah, I'm not going to have any at all. Yeah. I think any caffeine at all. Generally speaking, I feel like that's a good move anyway to not go every single day or mm-hmm. whatever. Like give yourself a break or whatever. And that way you'd maximize the effects mm-hmm. anyway. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. I think you're right about that. But you've never really been that hardcore. Because let's face it, a pre-workout. It gives you like a bigger pump. Yeah, no, I've pre-workout really isn't my thing. Yeah, the only unless you count jujitsu as a workout, which we've had this discussion lately. That's right. not really a workout, but like I would have discipline powder before going to the jujitsu, right. and I still will do that. But if, as far as I'm concerned, rolling in with a freaking right. pumping heart, I'm not okay. really down for that. With Agreed. The yeah. And that's tech. <clears throat> t- typically, that's not why we take pre-workout too. For workouts like jujitsu, mm-hmm. jujitsu—I I consider jujitsu a workout. That's a okay. hard workout. Actually, it's harder workout technically as far as output goes. Most mm-hmm. of the time, more than your average other workout, depending yeah. on the workout, obviously. But let's say if you're going in, you're going to do 
eight sets of 12 <laughs> with some bench and then maybe some tricep extensions, curls, this kind of thing. And you take a pre-workout, bro, that's that's the jam. You're right saying there. that's it, huh? That's so we jam, made bro. one of these for people like Echo Charles that wants to get it on. It's a uh, Discipline Go powder. Yep. Available now. Yeah. In mango, by the way. Yeah, you get some mango, other flavors. Mulk, if you need some protein, tastes like dessert. One of the best things that have ever been invented. I'm expecting probably, do they have a Nobel Prize for dessert? (laughs) (laughs) No, bro, I don't think so. Do they have a Nobel Prize for protein shakes? Uh, Well, yeah, you know, not that I'm aware of. There should be one. Let's face it, there should be one. Yes, and actually more than you know, really, because they, like, okay, you know, you heard of people making, like, mulk pancakes and all this stuff. Okay, here's the jam. Keep this in mind. Do this. Milk shake, mm-hmm. frozen banana, that whole jam, yep, the whole yep. creaminess, like Tulsi, Tulsi all patented, day, yep. right? So, so make make that when the kids aren't looking. Mm-hmm. Then you buy those little uh, popsicle, what do you call forms? Oh, you know the yeah, forms, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, that you can make popsicles in, and you make popsicles. Then you tell the kids, "Hey, I'll, I have a surprise for you mm-hmm. after dinner. You guys eat all your dinner, all good, right? I have a surprise. Say, oh, cool. They're all excited. You bust out that pop. It looks like one of those pudding pops. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I'm saying? So you that's know? what you've been doing. No, I'm gonna do it. I okay. didn't do it yet. But I'm just saying that's a good idea. See what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. That's the Mulk. Nobel Prize winning Mulk. Uh white Jocko White Tea, by the way. You can get the stuff. You can get the drinks at Wawa. You can get the stuff at Vitamin Shop, or you can get it from JockoFuel.com. If you subscribe to any of it, you get free shipping, which is a which is a total bonus. Oh yeah. And you don't gotta remember to take all that kind of stuff, so it's all good. Also, Origin USA. This is American-made stuff, mm. products, goods, jeans, boots. American-made denim, man. Doesn't get much American-made than that. <laughs> you could just say American. American. But it's sad that the American iconic jeans that you have aren't even made in America. Not you, but I mean us, we as a nation. A lot of people are out there wearing jeans they think are made in America. Yeah. They're not made in America. They're, um, they're packaged. Ma- yeah. They're, they might be packaged in America, yeah. but really, there's communists that are making your jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. And then it's nothing against the people, yeah. but the government has those people enslaved. So we, we're not for that. Mm. We're against that. You're against that. You know, I saw you and <clears throat> Pete on the news the other day. Oh, yeah. We you guys look news, good. Yeah. doing your thing. Yeah. We're out there. Yes, sir. Um, Newsworthy story. Yeah, I think so too. This is this we're bringing manufacturing back to America. You got to tell <coughs> some of those guys to stop jamming up your name, bro. I just uh, maybe I should. I don't know. They call me Jocko Wilnick. Will yeah, Wilnick. 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 Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't like that. I feel like it. I don't like it either. I feel like I. I, don't, I do I take offense to it? Mm, maybe, maybe not. But I feel like they're kind of pronouncing my name wrong. Too. It's weird that you would do that. It says Will Inc. That's right. literally what it says. Yes. How you reverse those numbers and reverse those letters and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. But that's what happens. And, and I don't know. You start to wonder, have you have they not heard anyone else say your name ever? Yeah. It's strange. It is odd, right? Kind of strange. But there yeah. you go. Either way, either way, it. you look good. You were saying some great stuff. American uh, back to origin USA. Yeah. Everything is made in in in. America, the, the seeds that are grown into the cotton that goes into the loom to make the material, the denim that makes the <laughs> jeans. Oh, man, all here. Made in America. Yeah. Boom. And since we are doing jiu-jitsu, you can get an American-made jiu-jitsu gi. It's true. Very true. Also, yeah, a lot of cool stuff on there. OriginUSA.com. That's where you can get it. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. It's a good spot. Good spot. You want to represent on this path that we're all on. 
Discipline equals freedom. That that goes deep. <laughs> if you want to represent, boom, that's where you can get your shirts and hats, t-shirts, um, hoodies, some rash guards on there, some other cool stuff on there. There's a jujitsu section now, apparently. Yes, sir, there is. I saw Knuckle represent the other day. Knuckle represents hard. Jujitsu is life. Jujitsu is look life. Good. You look good. You look good on them. Yeah. So, uh, Jack Daniel Hill had one on too. Oh, Jack yeah. Daniel. They know. Yes. Uh, there's a Dean Lister shirt coming out too at some point. Yeah. Oh, the the foot shirt. The foot shirt. Yeah, that's yeah. freaking legit. Also, uh, we have what's called the shirt locker. Mm. It's a sh- subscription service. You get a you get a cool new shirt every month. Some good stuff coming out. The Christmas shirt coming out. Oh. Oh yeah, that's a legit shirt. You showed it to me. That's a freaking. That's a freaking legit shirt. Solid. That's a legit shirt. I felt the same way. That's a legit shirt. It's uh. Can we say that or is it like bad? What if you say what it is? Reveal it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah, you can say it. It's just uh, it's a Christmas shirt and it has the Christmas truth nineteen four, Christmas truce nineteen fourteen. Yep. Got the flags of the nations involved. It's freaking legit. It's a respect. Yeah. Respect. Oh, yeah, big time. But, yeah, so, yeah, the shirt locker, it's, um, like I said, subscription. You get a cool new shirt uh, every month. A lot of, lot of good feedback on that one. And, we're t- and we actually tightened it up a lot, too, because we're, you know how it's, anyway, it, it can be complicated to, to provide that. So I feel like all the issues, they weren't huge issues, but it's real tightened up. It's a good streamlined process now, so keep that in mind. <laughs> Check. <laughs> JockoStore.com. So you can get this stuff. Uh, subscribe to this podcast, too. Don't forget about Jocko Unraveling with Daryl Cooper, the Grounded Podcast, a Warrior Kid Podcast. Also, we have JockoUnderground.com. And what that is is a little alternative world that we created just in case this world goes sideways. We don't, we don't control these platforms that you're listening on right now. So if something were to go Sideways, we might get banned for talking about masculine and feminine characteristics. I don't know. Could be. Some people are sensitive to that kind of thing. Even though we're reading a book from 1976, it just doesn't matter (laughs) these days. So if that should happen, we are in our own place. Cost $8.18 a month. If you can't afford that, email assistance at jockounderground.com. And we make another sort of tangential podcast to talk about stuff on that one as yep. well. Life advice. Yeah, a lot of straight Q&A. Up. Life advice from Jocko, straight yeah. up. Yeah, that's yeah. straight up. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. I'm the AD, assistant director, and if you wanna see quality assistant directing, you can just go subscribe to that, because mm-hmm. you can sense how I make the special calls, the little critical calls. Very influential. You know, it's that last, you know like you're, you're lifting, and you get to, you get to deadlift for, 95 it takes a lot of work to get that last little bit right sure you're trying to cut your run time down it takes a lot you get to you know a certain spot and then it takes a lot of work to get that it's real easy for you because you get to a certain spot and then i just roll in as the assistant director and just kind of go next level (laughs) for you (laughs) right so like how like like muhammad ali right when he they'd be like oh how many sit-ups do you do he's like i don't know how many sit-ups i do because i only count i only start counting when it starts to hurt Mm -hmm. right so i get all the easy sit-ups and you roll in yep. when it hurts and, and bring Just, us past the finish line. There you go. If you want to check that out, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Dude, hell yeah. <laughs> also, Psychological Warfare is like an album that we made back in the day for fundamental weaknesses, that mental weaknesses that, that we may stumble onto mm-hmm. before we do workouts, before we freaking cheat on our diet, eat some stuff that we don't want to be eating. Nonetheless, these are moments of weakness that Jocko helps us through. All you can do is listen to that. He'll tell you why 
You should just stay on the path. Stay on the path. Yeah. It's going to be better for you. Jocko tells you why. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. Also, if you want to hang some cool stuff on your wall, flipsidecanvas.com, Dakota Meyer. That's his company. He's making cool uh, graphic things to hang on your wall. Got a bunch of books. Final Spin, Dave Burke. <clears throat> what it's, do you got? It's Final Spin out. is out. It's out. Dude. It's out. This is it. It's right. out. It's live. Yep. Finally. What do you think's gonna what do you think the reviews are gonna say? What's your review? People know my review. I think I've talked about it. My review is good. <laughs> I think the mass review is gonna be good. I, I have a personal interest in this one because this is one of the few times you shared with me, I think I think I might have been way up there and mm. one of the first people to see this. Yep. And I I don't like I don't I don't take positions all that often and my position was immediately like this is gonna be awesome and my validation for that wasn't what I thought of it yeah. is I gave it to my wife and she read the whole thing straight through yeah. and I'm like bro <laughs> I think I said something like really flippant like trust me or like yeah. I know or <laughs> words that I don't like to use <laughs> and I was like dug in immediately like bro trust me yeah. something along those lines so we're here at that moment of truth I'm pretty sure now this is gonna play out I'll tell you okay so my in my family, not only my immediate family, meaning my willink, but also my mother, father, sisters, there's not a lot of cheerleading happening. You're not getting a bunch of compliments <laughs> ever. Totally. In fact, it's the opposite. Like we're gonna look for the holes. We're gonna look for the freaking, the, the issues, the problems, whatever. And that's what we're gonna hone in on. Yeah. So I, I gave this book to my oldest daughter. She was one of the first people to read it. And I gave her like a paper copy, like I printed it out. Here you go. I said, here, read this. Uh, I was actually just, I just said, hey, can you proofread this for me? You know, she's in college at the time. I said, hey, you know, proofread, you know, find any whatever errors. So she's got a red pen out. (laughs) And she reads it and she gets done and she comes walking out of her room because she was home at home, even though she was in college because of Miss Rona. She, you know, everyone was shut down, so she was there. And she comes walking out of her room, and uh, she's like, I go, oh, you know, oh, you finished? And she's like, yeah, just so nonchalant, just so, like, whatever, like, so you're an idiot. <laughs> and I said, oh, how was it? She goes, oh, it's fine, like, literally, just shining me on. <laughs> and I go, oh, cool, because I know what's happening. You know, I know there's no way she's going to be like, this was awesome. I go, oh, well, what, you know, what parts of it did you like or whatever? And she starts describing one part of the book, which I'm not going to mention, and she starts to cry. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, you can't hide this now, girl. I got you. I got you. So, yes, uh, tell me what you think. Final spin. It's available right now. Order it. Let me know what you think. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual, the Code, the Evaluation Protocols, which I wrote with Dave Burke, Sarah Armstrong. Disciplinical Freedom Field Manual, Way of the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, and four, Mike and the Dragons, About Face by Hackworth, which I wrote the forward to, Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, which I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. We also have a leadership consultancy called Echelon Front. We solve problems through leadership. Leadership is the solution. Whatever problems you're having, leadership is the solution. Go to echelonfront.com for details on that. And also, we have an online training platform. We got a bunch of people starting to join that right now, which is... Look, we have courses set up on there. We have daily drills you can do, and we have live sessions where I'm answering questions. The rest of the team is Dave's there, Leif's there. We're answering questions. We're doing that three times a week. So go to extremeownerships.com if you want to 
get on board with that. And if you want to help service members, active and retired, their families, gold star families, check out Mark Lee's mom. Mark Lee's mom, incredible woman, and she's got a charity organization, and it helps it helps veterans and it helps service members and families of all sorts. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want more of my paraphrastic pronouncements, or if you need more of Echo's irrelevant inquiries, or you want any of Dave's ancillary editions, you can find us on the interwebs. On Twitter, on the gram, and on Facebook, Dave is at David R. Burke, Echoes at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink, and to all the troops out there around the world, at all, at all those forgotten barricades, thank you for the holding the line to protect those of us here at home, and to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, secret service, and all first responders, thank you for holding the line to keep us safe here on the home front and everyone else out there. Let me just remind you of that quote from Francis Bacon. Why should a man be in love with his fetters though of gold? What's trapping you? What's controlling you? What's controlling your thoughts, your ideas, your beliefs? What's controlling your mind? And the things that are controlling you They might seem good. They might be made of gold. But they are enslaving you nonetheless. Do not let that happen. Cast off those mental manacles and think for yourself. And until next time, this is Dave and Echo and Jocko. Out.